This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick-and-mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 5.11 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show British firefighter and author Lee Hosey Pickett. Now, I want to just preface this episode. This was the first time I sat down and recorded since I came back from 7X, the rounded world venture with the Human Performance Project team. 
But whilst editing and listening to the recording, I realized I did a lot more talking than I normally like to do. These were areas I was very passionate about. It was great to compare and contrast with a fellow British firefighter. But I was aware of it. I don't know if it's going to be jarring for people that normally listen to this, that I'm normally a lot more ask a question than shut the hell up. But there was so much to pull out of Lee. There were so many comparisons. And in all honesty, I am often nauseated by some of the fallacies and myths spoken about the British Fire Service by the American Fire Service. So it was a great place to do some myth busting and compare some of our transatlantic views on the amazing things in the fire service and some of the things that can be improved. So over and above that, we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, leadership through his eyes, the book, mental health, his terrifying needle stick incident, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Lee Hosey Pickett. Enjoy. Well, Lee, I want to start by saying thank you so much for not only taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast, but also also physically come down to Hyde Park when I was there with the 7X crew and support the incredible runners that were there that day. That, the pleasure is all mine, James. Um, I think knowing that you were a stone's throw from me in Hyde Park was the least I could do to support yourself and that incredible team. Um just being in the company and knowing the 7X story and being in the company of so many incredible people with incredible backgrounds was just a pleasure to behold. And we, we, me and my wife left there thinking, when are they doing the next one and how can we get involved? <laughs> it was <laughs> a powerful thing. It really yeah, was. And, and that's just, yeah, and that's just my perspective or my take on it. Um, the influence that that will have, that whole project and what it stands for and what, what it represents is infectious and that will go on from strength to strength because of the people involved in it well I, what i was hoping would happen in london specifically and the team all said that the community in london was probably the strongest i mean we did some epic things around the world jumped out of helicopters in egypt and shotguns in cartagena but we had yourself we had um David Hindle, um, my mate Dave, who's a retired armed response uh, police officer. We had the Royal British Legion Industries. We had the Firefighters Charity and then some other people that came to meet some of the runners as well. It was what I wanted to portray was the mental health, especially. It isn't a British problem. It isn't a, a military problem. It's a universal problem. It's a human problem. And there are some, you know, uh, tribes and, and areas around the world where they don't have a lot of that because they're 
community is so strong there they, they do a lot of you know stuff outside they they are exercising they eat well but for most of us that are in the modern world especially if we're serving in uniform i wanted it to be this kind of aha moment at least for the americans australians and then the the british that were there that day to see each other and go ah this is so much bigger than that that kind of um uh echo chamber that I found myself as a British firefighter or an American special operations soldier. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's a shared problem. It's a shared, it's a shared ailment. Um, it's, it, it will, it has greater emphasis now because there's more of a spotlight upon it. Um, but back in, you know, my granddad's era in, in the fire and rescue service or the fire brigade, as it was known then. Um, and Prior to that, he was in the he was in the uh, Royal Navy, um, and my other grandfather on my dad's side was in the Royal Air Force, um, and they would talk of stories of of trauma and, and seeing inc incredibly sad and horrific things. Um, but as I think, as generations have gone on, and we learn more about the causes, and we learn more about treatments and, and how to manage it, I think that more of it comes out, and it's not that there's more. There's more of it because of the jobs that we do. But I think the more that we understand it, the more people share their own stories of it. And it then becomes a bigger subject and a healthier subject. But going out there and and um, and representing mental health and mental well-being and suicide prevention and all those things that are just uh, un un unfortunate byproducts of the incredible jobs that we do is still a, is, is still a message that needs continuous peddling and getting these people to come out and say, do you know what? I'm in a bad place as well. And by going to each of those countries, like you did on each of those continents, you've touched that military, that, that, that first responder community there. And it becomes a ripple in a pool that just gets bigger and bigger. Um, and I think it's incredible. And like I said, we, we, I came back in awe of the entire team that, 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 you, that you all represent. What the, the trip was such an amazing microcosm of what so many of us endure in our professions. And one of the big um, aha moments, I think, for a lot of the people that weren't military or first responders, a lot of the VIPs that came with us especially, was the, the, the crippling effect of sleep deprivation. And what's funny is you had sent me a, like a pin of your location of where, you know, you're getting closer and closer. And yeah. I was going to show you where we were in Hyde Park. And so I was thinking, okay, Lee's coming. A fellow firefighter, David Hindle, came to visit as well. And uh, so I brought my a few books for you guys. And I signed my book to David Lee because I was so sleep deprived. <laughs> I totally oh, no. got the two names. <laughs> so then when you came and I signed one, another one for Lee and then you gave me your book, which we'll talk about today. Yeah. I went back to David about 10 minutes later. I was like, hey, can I see your book for a second? And I scratched it out and I put David and then I put a line and said sleep deprivation. So, you know, even though I lived it for 14 years, it was it was yeah. really yeah. striking because I had really got myself back to a good base, you know, baseline as far as what a well-slept person is supposed to feel like. And then I think we averaged about four hours sleep living on a plane. So the sleep quality obviously wasn't fantastic. And it was it was like literally five days later, I was back to that zombie style mind that I'd lived with for so many years. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. it's so, 
so like glaring when you've gone that acutely from well slept to not but it's such a kind of chinese water torture element in the first responder profession that you don't even realize how tired you are until either you get hurt you retire or, or you have you know some length of time where you actually get to sleep at home again and then go oh shit <laughs> this, this is what this is what well slept yeah. actually feels like and uh, do you know what it's um in your book which I've found fascinating from, from start to finish. And that's not just to float your ego. It is genuinely amazing. And there's a part in there where you talk about the, um, the, the struggles of, of sleep deprivation and the impact that that has on your body, on your job, on your family. Um, and having been a firefighter for 26 years, I never really... I knew that it was a thing and you, you, yeah, I mean, you dressed it up really nicely talking about um, uh, somebody standing over your bed with two symbols <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and at, at some point you're going to go to sleep, but at some point they're going to get clashed together. So you are not in a deep sleep. Um, nothing that you would ever contribute or, or, or associate with a, with a, with a, with a, with a well-rested night's sleep. Um, and, Whilst I, I feel what you were saying, I've never really, until you actually said it, I was thinking to myself, he's, he's given me another a way of thinking about this. And this is the beauty and the benefits of our conversations. Because when you impart a, a, another perspective on something to somebody else that knows what you're talking about, they go, oh, wow, it's like a, um, a penny drop. You know, it's a, um, a moment of clarity where you think he's got it. That, that's, 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 the, that's the tiny piece of jigsaw puzzle that I was looking for to, to explain what I'm feeling. Um, and that is why we do what we do. We're invested in the conversations that we're having um, just to, to, to build a, um, a better place for everyone and the jobs that we do. Absolutely. Well, that's what I found is I was having all these light bulb moments from other people. And none of these thoughts are my original thoughts. They're all coming from these great minds. Sure, but sure. I'm looking, I'm standing, you know, on my own in a room full of light bulbs. I'm like, this is, this is so wrong. We need to get these light bulbs to everyone else. So that was what was a yeah. beautiful thing about, you know, like you've done writing the book, but also the podcast is, all right, how many different forms of media can we disseminate information? And my next book I'm writing, my pipe dream is to get on the screen this time. Because if you really want to get, you know, into people's eyeballs and sow seeds into their minds, then that is the ultimate one. But yeah, I mean, it's that's what's so sad. I don't know if you find it in the British Fire Service, but here in America, there's we're just so siloed that these, these departments just rarely speak to each other so you have incredible ideas and incredible leaders and incredible innovators but they only exist in their own department and then more often than not their department doesn't even want them to be that person they're actually accepted by other departments but not their own yeah incredible it's exactly the same here um and it's, it's a real shame and you'll find that those people with incredible experience and knowledge and a, a broader way of thinking they're 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 not silenced but their ideas don't don't get um don't get the limelight because it's not on an agenda and i've had this quite recently in, and uh with, with my service in in having a greater discussion about 
um, mental health or mental ill health and PTSD. And what, <clears throat> excuse me, what, what are they doing to, um, to, to reduce the amount of, of, of suffering in somebody's career, wherever it may fall, beginning, middle, end, and the, accumulate, the accumulative effect of um, exposure to trauma? And saying we need to focus our minds, or you, you know, I, I know, I know, I know where I need to be, but you as an organisation need, need to focus your efforts more on this end of somebody's career before they've exposed, before they've been exposed to this this terrible trauma, and give them resilience tools. Um, um, but what I've found in in recent years is because now this is just my opinion but an informed one um that organizations have key performance indicators that i that are that ha- that are they're measured on and these come down from government and home office levels and i don't know it might be you have to have a working smoke alarm in every home in the borough that you're responsible for that's you know that's what you're measured on um but mental health mental ill health long-term sickness ptsd is not a kpi you're not measured on it so therefore the resources and time and effort and money isn't focused because they don't want you focused there they want you focused here and here and here so when you're coming up with innovative ways of perhaps uh, or, or encouraging them to think differently, they're like, great idea, but it, it, because it, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, sadly, it doesn't seem to interest them because it's not what they're measured on. And these people that are in their silos, in their departments, are dictated to by their bosses and so on and so forth above them. Um, and those real important subjects, were well, certainly subjects that are important to you and I, don't get enough. I'm not saying they don't get any time, because they do, but I would, with hand on heart, say they don't get enough, nowhere near enough um, time and money and effort spent on them. And where does that stop? Where, where, when does that change? <clears throat> yeah, we're well, using... Yeah, English men and women is a perfect example. Uh, something I've said recently is, at some point, the British said, we're not going to send children up chimneys anymore. We're not going to work children in the factories anymore because they realized that these children were dying. Well, look at the first responders you know, of a lot of these uh, modern countries. The same thing has happened. And the problem is, is there's still that focus on or which nozzle are we going to use, you know, now, or, you know, which is the best PPV van, or, you know, even even the clean cab, which I think has a lot of value to it. And I had the Swedish firefighters behind that on the show. But if we're not looking at the resilience of the human body and their immune system, and we're talking about cancer, for example, again, we're missing a huge part of, of the whole conversation. So if the SAS or the SBS are getting a high level of training and getting human performance, you know, um, experts to make sure that they operate the highest level, why would we hold police and fire at any different standard? Lives also depend on us. I know it's obscene. It's disgusting and it's immoral. Um, um, three words are plucked out of the air immediately. Um, it's, 
you know, one of the things that I've always tried to find the answer to, but found it impossible was we all know the firefighters, the men and women that have died in the line of duty, you know, their, their deaths are, um, very poignant moments. And it's a, you know, it's a reminder of the, of the dangers of the, of, of the job that we do. And very seldom do you have the information about those firefighters that committed suicide <clears throat> and the high numbers, you know, countrywide, worldwide. Um, why? I don't know why, why we're not, because it's, it's such a fundamental, you know, it, for me, it, they, they have indirectly died in the line of duty. 100%. Because, because some, of the, some of the exposure that they've had, you know, ultimately we don't know. Well, I guess those that, those that are close to people that commit suicide have an understanding of maybe why. But those that are in the first responder world that have maybe on top of their personal struggles with family and relationships and finance, whatever it may be, have got that compound, real compounding issue of the exposure they have in the, in the line of their work. And it's just that, that, that maybe that one thing that just tips them over the edge, you know, just, just one thing they cannot cope with anymore that just gives them that ultimate decision of, do you know what? I'm, you know, um, people will be better off without me because I don't know I'm a, I'm an emotional liability. I'm a mental liability, whatever they want to brand themselves, which is tragic um, is, is, well, I, I don't know. It, like I said, it, it frustrates me that the numbers aren't there to be, um, to be looked at. Um, and I guess they're not there because in part, maybe that this can't be completely contributed to the job they do. So it's not, it's not measured. Yeah. No, and you see that. I mean, sadly, every time I see uh, so-and-so was found dead in their home, so-and-so passed away suddenly, you know, it's, okay, well, it was suicide or overdose. And I can see clear as day these days, but it's so sad because we still have this stigma on reporting it. And this is a societal thing, but until we actually take the shame away from suicide and understand that at that moment the brain is so miswired that they are as broken mentally as you as you would be if you you know snapped your femur and then stop looking at it judgingly stop bringing in some ridiculous notion of shame through religious beliefs or whatever it is and just look at it as how do we fuck up how do we miss this how do we let this person believe that they were a burden as you said to the point where now we've lost them, you know, and the more that we actually pull those those deaths and the overdoses are very important too. That's the other elephant in the room and pull the mental health conversation into the forefront and, and also say, look, it's not just service. It's a compounding elements of so many things. As you said, sleep deprivation is another huge one. But until we pull that out into the light, it's going to remain in the shadows and it will remain unaddressed and we'll keep burying men and women in uniform and obviously Absolutely. civilians too. Yeah, yeah, um, and let's let's not um, let's not <laughs> ignore the social stresses that are placed on. And I'm not sure what it's like in in the US at the moment, but in the UK, cost of living. Uh, I'm going to change that. It's the cost of greed crisis because there's plenty of money swashing around in in corporate um, organisations that um, that are charging us three times as much for energy, and and then and then 
celebrating three th- record profits. They're, they're three times as big. I'm, I'm not surprised. We're, we're paying more more for our energy than we ever had. So I don't call it a cost of living crisis. It's a cost of breed crisis. Um, and everything is more expensive. Um, and a, a seeming in this country, a government that has lost its ability to govern and has become quite in, uh, a complete embarrassment, the UK um, Conservative government. Um, and, the, you know, what that places upon the shoulders of every single man, woman and child in, in this country is a stress in itself, you know, a social, it's like a dystopia right now in the UK. Um, and that's unhealthy. And you, and that, now, now you're expecting the men and women of our, of our services to, to go and do a job with, with all that going on in their lives as well. And then go into an organisation that maybe isn't stepping up and doing enough to protect them. Um, it's a recipe for disaster. And and what, what bugs me as well is that you have um, decision makers in their ivory towers um, making decisions that directly affect those at the sharp end. And those decision makers have never very seldom really been in in a uniform at the sharp end and understand how things work and how things don't work um yet we're still you know we still have to absorb the 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 cuts um and the reduction in establishment whether it's numbers people appliances stations everything's cut and cut and cut to a point which you you make again make 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 reference to in your book (laughs) There's only so much you can cut. And then you are negatively impacting those that we're serving, you know, let alone as, ourselves, but we're, we're placing those that we serve in greater risk. Yeah, absolutely. I went to meet um, the uh, former, one of the former heads of the Five Irish Charity, Ruth, um, and her son is uh, working at Google. So we went to Google and met with her and one of the uh, officers of the London Fire Brigade. Um, and... On my journey prior to that with my son, I'd passed this, what was once a beautiful fire station, and now it's a very fancy restaurant. So I asked him about it. I was like, you know, we passed, it was station, I forget the number now. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was one of the ones that was, you know, supposedly browned out, closed down temporarily, and they never opened it back up again. And this is, you know, a, a population that's growing and growing and growing in London, you know, and I keep seeing my British, you know, brothers and sisters striking and striking. And then during COVID, you know, rather than actually giving them, you know, more financial support and training and equipment and the same with our NHS doctors and nurses, basically everyone stood outside and clapped their hands at five o'clock as if that was going to magically solve every problem. And then some, one of my guests had, a, I forget who it was now, but they made a great point and said, you know what that did, James, that put the, the uh, responsibility squarely on the shoulders of the providers. And it took, you know, washed the hands of anyone that actually was responsible for more beds, more equipment, more staff, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the problem is, and, and you, you said on it before, the taxpayer pays the same amount of tax. And what they don't realize, whether it's in America or Australia or England, excuse me, England, is 
that you're still paying the same, but your service is getting worse and worse and worse. That fire station that used to be a mile down the road is now five miles down the road. And this is the the kind of voter's element of this whole conversation. No one has given you a tax refund because they shut down the fire service. Think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very, very valid point. Um, and they don't get to find out about it. And the, I tell you what, the, and this does happen. The first time that some do find out about it is when they're waiting 10 minutes and their house is on fire and they called the fire brigade and they're like five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, and they're looking and watching everything that they own burn to the ground and you get there and they are so angry at you because you took 10 minutes to get to their house on fire. And in some places, I won't mention county names, but it was la- it was the year before last, they shut a fire station and that night there was a house fire two minutes away and a, an elderly gentleman died. Um, and they fought and fought and fought to keep that station open saying, um, you know, it, we need a station here. You know, it's quite, it's a densely populated area. And that, that service said, we've got cover. That station can cover this area. That station can cover that area. Um, and it took, I think it was nine minutes. Whether the outcome would have been any different, I don't know. But it was fucking terrible press for that brigade. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And it, it should be, it should be a wake-up call. It should be a big alarm bell for every chief fire officer that is thinking of closing a fire station and they're doing so based on statistics. They look at the, they've crunched the numbers and we all know that statistics can be skewed and represented in any which way that suits the, the, the reader or the, or the, you know, the person that wants them. Um, and I, I think it's awful. Um, and it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's remember that, you know, OxyContin had research showing that it was the safest opiate and cigarettes were dispensed by doctors years ago. So, you yeah, know, yeah. you got to be careful where you get your statistics from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we've just kind of, you know, already gone down a what's wrong with the fire service journey. And those need to be talked about. But I want to get on to your, your journey. Now, I think what's interesting about your lineage is actually the, the generation we need to start at is your grandfather. You touch on this in the book. Talk to me about his service in the Navy and the trauma of that particular incident, and then we'll walk forward how he then transitioned out into the fire service. Absolutely, yeah. Um, back in, in the war, he was in the um, Arctic Ocean on a, on a naval um, frigate, and they'd lost their, lost their engine power. And bearing in mind, up there, it's fucking cold, not just cold. <laughs> It's fucking cold. Um, minus 18, I think he, he, he described. Um, and they lost their engine to their boat, their ship. You'd kill me for calling it a boat. And, um, <laughs> Little dinghy. Is, uh, <laughs> and they lost their, their, their supplementary power as well, their auxiliary power. Um, and they were literally just stranded. Um, they were convinced that being so vulnerable that they would get, you know, they would be discovered by a German U-boat in in no time. Um, but just as luck would have it, that current took them up to Greenland. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, and they were, it was weeks and weeks. I forget how many weeks. A long time. Nine weeks, I think. Um, all their rations had run out. Um, 
there was about 20 men on the boat and they just all had convinced themselves they'd all they'd all got to a place in their mind that 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 they would die on that on that ship um and they just by chance they got spotted by a u.s coast guard um i think it was a catalina aircraft um flying over greenland um and they were rescued um just a you know stroke of luck they were seen by this this aircraft um and he came back. Obviously, my, uh, my, my nan was informed that he was uh, lost at sea, presumed dead as well. She had that telegram. Um, and he came back and um, was reunited with with my nan. Um, and in no t- in, in no in no time at all, he uh, entered the fire brigade um, in in Hampshire, um, and that was his service then. You know, right up to 1969. Um, you know, a fantastic career. Um, he ended up um, transferring to the service that I'm in now. <clears throat> um, and yeah, and he would, he would, I think just, I mean, he obviously influenced my dad and it's not my dad on his side. It was my, my dad is my granddad in the fire service is my mother's father, but being um, in a relationship with my mum, my dad was, was sort of, um, uh, immersed in in what fire fire brigade life was like, um, so he was uh, he, he obviously made that transition into the fire brigade as well. But my granddad's the stories he would tell me of of things that jobs maybe station life um, was was no different. It was it's this it, nothing's changed, you know, nothing's changed. Now, when um, I'd love to get your perspective on your dad as well, but with your granddad, when you look back now with, you know, a full career in the fire service yourself, were there any elements of the job and or the compounding element of his service in World War II prior to that, that you witnessed in his his life during his career or even the transition out? Yeah, I, do you know what? It's, it's a very, it's a very, a very good question and it's and now thinking about it he would always say to me he, you know he he saw a lot of people um killed at war um he saw a lot of people severely injured and a couple die in in fire service um in in the role of the, the fire service and he would always say to me whenever he saw me whenever i left he would say son remember one hand for yourself one hand for the job because he knew, you know, he, he he'd witnessed. If you didn't live by that, you know, there were, you were you were going to come to a sticky end. Um, you were going to you had to make sure that everything you did, you actually had a bit of thought for yourself as well. Um, and and I, and I guess with his experience and his age and and his exposure to to many many sort of um, stressful situations. He would always be mindful of trying to make sure that whilst, you know, I I was joining the fire brigade or I had intentions or I said to him as a very young boy that that's what I wanted to do. Maybe there was an element in his mind where he was thinking, that's great. I'd love you to do. I'd love you to go down the, the, the same route as me. And he did. He genuinely did. But he also knew what that meant for me physically emotionally and mentally and that's why he would always say that to me on that when we, whenever we parted uh, you know, parted love that that's just incredible insight for a generation back then but i mean you think about 
all the things that were probably still in place. Food was probably still pretty pure back then. I'm sure they sat around and did, you know, off gas around the kitchen table a lot before devices and, you know, separated dorm rooms and those kind of things came in. So, you know, I, I would love to see that kind of side-by-side -side comparison of the pros of the fire service 100 years ago versus the cons. I would say um, the, 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 the pros side-by-side um, most definitely the togetherness and the camaraderie. That was something he would always um, speak about and celebrate and would always have a funny antic or something that happened, you know, um, a wind up or a prank that was played on, on a colleague that was in every conversation. So that hasn't changed. And, and I talk about that in my book quite significantly, the important role that that plays in a firefighter's career whilst many may see dark humor or banter of that kind of description as maybe I don't know, unprofessional or, or um, whatever they want to call it. It, it plays a significant part and, and we'll definitely get into that. Um, but he would, uh, he would say that uh, whenever I spoke to him about you know, my service and he would, he would be, fa he'd, he'd be fascinated around what do we, you know, what are our fire engines like? What are your, what are your fire engines like now? He'd say, or what's changed? Do you still use this or do you still use that? Um, and many things still exist in their primitive form, but they may have had a redesign and they be more, they might be more efficient, but they still, they're still, they're still constructed and, and around a, a, a very old design. Um, um, because you know, when, when things aren't broke, don't fix them. You can redesign them. Um, but it's, uh, so yes, he would, he would be, he would be constantly asking me, um, once I'd got in the fire service, um, for comparisons, he would always be looking for comparisons. Now, while we're on the subject, this is one of the most, uh, oh, it's this heresy to say this in the American fire service. And it drives me crazy because, it's steeped in this facade that this is tradition. And this isn't tradition, it's fire service history. It's a very different box that you put this in. But I've worked on the, the East Coast and then the West Coast of America. When I was on the West Coast, the fire helmet was a lot smaller. Uh, if you look at any you know, some of the Hollywood movies that actually got it right and it's the LA firefighters, you see it's a much smaller um, helmet. Fast forward to the last 10 years or so, you know, the European helmet has morphed into more of a, a, you know, a crash helmet, which when you look at any special operations team in the fire service is what they switch to anyway, pretty much. You look at special operations, you know, but it's the SAS or the SEALs, they're not wearing tin helmets. They have evolved their equipment to match the technology of today. But one of the biggest resistances in America is clinging on to this fire helmet that has roots in the 1930s. And it drives me crazy because it's just heavy. It's cumbersome. I've worn you know, East Coast for most of my career, West Coast for part of my career, and the West Coast was 10 times as good. And then I've tried on the European helmet, and it just makes even more sense. You've got, you know, the light is in the helmet. You've got the comms in the ears. It's ergonomic. So, you know, we talk about it's for them, yet we choose this fucking plastic sombrero to stick on our head when we go into a fire. So I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but did you, did you, were you present for that transition from the older kind of a fireman Sam helmet to the more, most modern one. And what is your perspective yes. as an English firefighter who's actually fucking worn this thing between the two? Uh, it's, it, 
you've nailed it already. It is, um, it's when we changed over, I, I was at training school, 97, um, <clears throat> in the winter of 97. And uh, it was the old, like you say, the old Fireman Sam helmet with quite a wide brim, certainly at the back, stuck right out um, with, a, with, a, with a visor that went off over the top. And you used to bring that down. It was just like a big curved piece of perspex around your face. Um, heavy. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those things where you, you, you put it on and tip your head to the left and you had to have a strong neck to, to bring it back level. Um, I can't, I see the US helmets and for me, I think tradition. I don't think anything else apart from tradition um, and going over to what we use now, the Rosenbauer. Um, and like you said, you've described it perfectly. It's so ergonomic. It, the design is very considered um, it's evolved over many, many years. Um, it, you have RTC glasses built in. You can flick them up and then you bring down a fire visor for heat. So you've got a double protection. Um, you know, comms, you have torches clipped on in, in any aspect, um, a, a torch lamp at the front. Um, and they're lightweight as well. Um, and they give you such a, especially working working in confined spaces, um, It's it, it does make sense. And why the US fire industry hasn't evolved. I, I, I don't know. It's, it doesn't seem, I wonder how many injuries with, with neck. And I'm, I'm just thinking if, if, if you've got a US helmet strapped up quite tight with a chin strap and it's quite wide brimmed and you get a partial collapse of some description and it catches that wide rim, the jolt on your neck must be quite considerable. Now there's there's an argument that if the wide rim wasn't there, that partial collapse ends is ends up on your shoulder. So do you is there a greater is there is there greater protection from having a wide rim, so that you stop those things hitting you, the rest of your 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 torso? I don't know. It's, it's obviously a, a hugely debated uh, subject. Yeah, I think I'd rather take one to the shoulder than the head any time to to answer that. But yeah. secondly, I can give you yeah. my and this is a. You know, it's it's a, a truth bomb that people aren't going to like, but it's vanity. That's why the helmet's still around now. Because you ask people, and they'll make fun. This is what nauseates me. Oh, oh, the space helmet from the Europe. They'll make fun of the European helmets. Right, right. But right. I don't hear anyone making fun of night vision goggles and, you know, the, the, the helmets yeah. that the SEALs wear. There's not, you know, there's not regular soldiers go, oh, you, you know, where's your turn helmet? But that's exactly what yeah, it's like in yeah, America. Yeah. And it's because... Wow. They want to look like fucking Kurt Russell from Backdraft. That is it. That is it. Because you're, you're arguing about how you look. You're choosing a worse piece of technology because yeah. you want to look good. And you're going to grow your mustache. Yeah. And you're going to rub fucking soot in your face so you can walk out, you know, so that yeah. the local newspaper gets a picture of you. And you're going to yeah. lean on your pike pole in front of the burnout house. This is the fire service that I see now. And I wore these fucking helmets for 14 years. So it's not like I've never worn them. But I can tell you right now. Looking at the technology that you guys have, it is just hands down better. And it is simply egos that are getting in the way of equipping our American firefighters with the same or take that technology and then click it up another notch, make it even better. But to say this is tradition is fucking bullshit. This is fire service history. Same as, you know, the, the, the wool tunic and the, you know, three-quarter length boots. It is history. Tradition is courage, community, bravery, service. That is tradition. Not mustaches and fucking leather helmets. No, 
no you're absolutely right and and that doesn't stop there does it that that bunker gear doesn't seem you know we, we've got really comfortable gear that is lightweight it is you know it's incredibly um breathable um uh, heat resistant fire resistant and it makes sense and and you know i, I see the gear that's i see the gear that firefighters in the u.s wear and yeah it conjures up a sense of tradition and backdraft but for me I, I i then think is it really practical you know what what what, what greater harm is being done by sticking tra to tradition um versus moving forwards and, and having a little bit more consideration about the men and women that are actually wearing that stuff because it some, somebody somebody somewhere is making a conscious decision to stay there because there must be in the private sector in the US, wherever you want to look at oil refineries, um, I'm not sure where else where you would have maybe maybe the, the the US air bases, the fire services on the air bases and the airports, they haven't got that traditional stuff. I'm I'm certain that they've moved forward in more of a modern, um, ergonomic, um, sensible way. So somebody somewhere is making a decision or no one anywhere is being brave enough to break, break the mold. Yeah, I think that's it. I think as a profession, I mean, think about it this way. We have worked what we call 24-48 now, so 56 hours a week for decades, my entire profession. And then most of my career is also understaffed. So now you're working in mandatories as well. And we have a union that I paid dues to for 14 years that never addressed the work week. And it's the same with this. We have to take a step back, put our egos down, stop beating our chest saying, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And, you know, this is the, you know, any other helmet is, is, is worn by pussies. This is what a man wears. And be like, for fuck's sake, get over yourself. Yeah, Find yeah. the best. Because you beat your chest talking about it's for them. Well, why would you choose a worse piece of equipment if you are really, truly getting on that rig every day, wanting to be the best responder you can be? If that's the case, you would fight tooth and nail for a better work week and the best equipment that you can wear. And if you're yeah, not you modeling the, the special operations community, who holds us to the same standard as them, and I just did a post on that today, over and over and over again, then it is our own egos, our own narcissism that's stopping our progress and truly advocating for our wellness as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's such a shame. I think um, I, I don't know. I don't know much about the trade union um, officials and, and and the way they organise. And there, have you still got in the US? Are there still those individuals? in tradition that don't like doing anything different in senior trade union positions that also where they should be perhaps considering more welfare around firefighters and firefighting that you've got those people there as well so the progress isn't going to be driven by the trade union movement I'll tell you what it is, is I've, what I've seen from my own eyes. And again, there's some incredible unions out there. There's some departments that I'm sure they're fighting for or even have some of these helmets. But we're right. talking about anomalies, not the masses. But what I've seen is when a lot of people get into union positions, it becomes self-serving. And one of the most disgusting things I see is the unions will actually oppose annual fitness standards. So because they know, and I've seen it with my own eyes in previous places, that if they are held to that standard, they will fail miserably 
Now you have someone in the union position who's doing the polar opposite of what they should be doing. Rather than holding us to a fitness standard so that we can A, do our job, and B, as if not more importantly, have a long, healthy retirement, they resist fitness standards because they know that they themselves are slugs and they will never pass it and their job might be threatened. So this is, again, that self-serving, um, you know, polit- I mean, they're politicians is what it is. What we need is, you know, passionate, fired up firefighters that will fight tooth and nail for, you know, we don't have to worry about it in the UK because you have NHS. But here in America, you know, the the insurance, the mental health um, uh, counseling services, but also maintaining that bar, maintaining that bar to keep stations open, maintaining that bar to give our responders rest and recovery between shifts. And maintaining that bar so that we are the best version of ourselves. So when we do respond to that house fire with that elderly gentleman from the station that is open because they fought for it, now we're able to actually affect that rescue and save a life, which is the very nucleus of why we put the uniform on in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, do you feel like you know we're we're in a we're in a different we're in a different era? Um, with with greater emphasis on conversation and connection between people, and 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 you know, and having incredible platforms like this, that we are creating more conversation, creating more challenges on old methods, old ways of doing things. You're promoting newer newer ways of thinking, looking beyond your you know your service and seeing how things are done differently elsewhere. Um, and I think this is this is this is a key having having a platform like this because the newer generations and I've had it. You know, I was on Pete Wakefield's um, Firefighters podcast in the UK, and and since going on there, I've had all manner of firefighters that have been surprisingly young and at the start of their career that are saying, I heard you on the firefighters podcast, you know, um, it was incredible. I didn't know this. I didn't know that. And I'm just starting out in my career. And is there anything you can suggest or recommend that, that will put me in a good place for the, for, you know, for my journey on for the next 40 years. And I'm thinking, this is brilliant. The, this is the, you know, this is, this is the, this is the healthy target audience. Those that are at the start of their career because they're the ones that are going to be going on and making a difference. They're the ones that will be going and going on to champion new ways of thinking and new ways of being. Um, I think it's an incredible, an incredible opportunity. And I just wonder if, if by having, have you got any, is there any sign of change because of the incredible work that you're doing and, and the messages that you're sending out? I think the answer is yes, and I consider myself just one tiny piece of this tapestry that is anyone that's trying to make a difference. I mean, you know, with your book and Pete's podcast and all these other people that, you know, are out there just trying to force change. And this, you know, and, and I don't think it's even like the past is bad and we're trying to change it. I think it's the opposite. I think there's so many lessons in the past. And like, for example, in 1930, that helmet was incredibly innovative. But I don't think they they thought that we'd be wearing it almost 100 years later. They would assume that it would continue to evolve. You see what I mean? So taking the lessons from your grandfather's era, you know, I agree 100%. People just, oh, my God, they'll, they'll fight over, like, fucking um, pistol grips on, on, a, on, a, on a nozzle. Like, it's still water that comes out the end, for fuck's sake. Water puts out fire most of the time, unless it's, you know, class B or C. 
And then in which case, let's use foam or turn off the power. You know, there's, we know what to do with those. A ladder is still a great tool to climb from the ground to first or second, third floor and facilitate a rescue. These are the basic things that we learned from our forefathers. But the work week has changed. The application of EMS and 911 abuse has changed and we haven't evolved with it. So I think this is what's so powerful about this platform is that we're still kind of romanticizing of the fire service of old rather than taking the innovation that our forefathers... Our forefathers came up with the SCBA and bunker gear and masks and, you know, bailout ropes and all these other things. So we have to continue that and stop looking, you know, looking at it like it stopped 50 years ago, the war years and all that stuff. The modern for fire service is so completely different. And in America, we're so embedded with EMS that it's a completely different world. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. So we have to swallow our pride and allow the profession to evolve, but understand that the workload of the modern firefighter, the modern paramedic is so immense compared to, you know, 80 years ago that the work week and the way that we work our responders has to evolve and it hasn't. It's stuck in the mud for decades and this is why we're seeing so many of the problems so i think the dissemination of knowledge and ideas and you know what this podcast is what a podcast does is it removes those silos because whatever your chief or you know union disseminates that's that's where the the line of communication stops but you can hit play on a podcast whether you're in nepal or cape town or reykjavik or florida and access the exact same information. And then you realize, oh, you know, it. we are doing this the same, but Norway's idea over here is phenomenal. Or, you know, there's a place in you know, South Carolina that's doing this. It's amazing. So that is, I think, what's exciting is that we get to remove all the barriers to entry and truly knowledge share and exchange ideas. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's fascinating that, that we have that, um, you know, my my granddad, God rest his soul. If if he was here now and he he saw me on on a on a call to Florida, to a podcast, he'd be like, there'd be so many questions like how how is that happening, and what is a podcast? Um, and it's you know it's it's uh, it's to be celebrated and to be used for incredible things, and it is. You know we've never been more connected, and just just listening to you talk, then I do remember my my grandfather coming to the station. Um, for a, for a guided tour, um, not long before he passed away, and we I talk, we showed him a breathing apparatus set, um, and he was talking to me about what they what was called a proto set, which was like a set of motor like a leather motorcycle goggles, a, 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 like a swimming clip for your nose, and a, and, a, and a regulator that you pushed put in your mouth with these these two flexible hoses that went to a. Uh, like a honeycomb the proto set which um which filtered out the carbon dioxide um and you just rebreathed um and showing him what a modern day you know scaba set um looked like and how it operated and and the, you know how how your cylinders have got you know 300 bars of air and can last whatever an hour if you're not doing anything or 15 minutes if you're really working hard um he was fascinated and it's, it's those moments where you think we have come so far and things have evolved so, so much for the benefit of those that are using them and wearing them because his face said it all. Duration, weight, um, safety, 
so many things were sort of like bowled him over. Yet we still have, like you said, tr tradition not allowing common sense to prevail over over vanity. Um, I, I see, you know, when I look at the uh, US US um, fire services with the, it's not just the, it isn't just the helmets and the bunker gear. It's, fire engines haven't changed much. Trucks haven't changed much. Um, there's still, you know, a brand new rig will come out and, and it, it looks like a brand new version of something from the 70s. You know, lots of chrome, um, very, very traditional. Now, I guess it is just a, uh, a transport to and from. Um, and I'm sure pumps have evolved and those sort of the, the technical side of things. But, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a look to be had. Um, that's, not, that's not all bad. But when it starts, when you start considering that not moving on with the times and giving people things that are better to do the same job that make that keep you safer that keep you in a career for longer and probably most importantly when you leave because of the exposure to better things that keep you safer keep you healthier that you retire and you have a long and healthy retirement because if you don't allow people to be using things that are state-of-the-art innovative and keep you healthy and that detriments your, your you know, that, that, that could be the difference between having a long retirement and having little to no retirement. Um, and I think much has to change, much has to change. Just, just listening to you talking about that helmet. It's, um, and that's just the, obviously the tip of the iceberg. There's probably many things that are, that are traditional and need to change. Um, I just, you know, for me, being in a European fire rescue service and having very innovative fire gear and helmets and equipment um i never started off with those you know i came from horrendous rubber boots at training center really heavy fire gear that didn't breathe a wide rimmed um composite kind of fiberglass helmet that was cumbersome and heavy you know i i've i've been there i've seen that and done that and, and worn that awful stuff now i'm where i am now 26 years on I would never want to go back to that. Not in a fucking million years. No way. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy where I am and using the equipment and wearing the, you know, wearing what I wear now. It's uh no, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I remember going um, two departments ago. There's one of our chiefs. He was a well-respected chief, a good bloke, but he gave a smoke reading class and it was interesting. It really was like, I really, and I was a few years into my career, but really understanding the fuel load of dark smoke in a fire, even though it's not ignited at that moment, the potential it was a great class. But he talked about how the British firefighters never go into a fire. And I remember sitting there going, well, that's fucking bullshit. And then, you know, fast forward a couple more years, go see the Grenfell fire, some of the most interior heroism that you're going to see by an entire fucking department. So, you know, there's there's so many myths surrounding, you know, what Americans think about the UK and vice versa. But it's funny you say about the, the rigs because I hadn't really thought of it this way. But someone put a post just the other day and they were talking about clean cabs and something else. They're like, how about hose beds that aren't seven feet off the ground? 
And it's exactly what you're talking about. We still have to clamber yeah. up and stand on a fire engine, of which many people have fallen off and some even yeah, died. Yeah. When you yeah. guys have the hose rolls where it's at, you know, chest level and you open yeah. the cab and you yeah. roll the hose out and you yeah. can roll it back. Literally, it rolls onto oh. a roller. Um, yeah. And you go to the American trade shows for the, the fire service trade shows. I remember thinking this with the helmet. I'm like, oh, wow, that's fucking innovative. You got the same helmet yet again. And when you think about it, yes, you're right. <laughs> they, they, are, they are redder and shinier, but it is yeah. the same concept. And some of those, you yeah. know, I'm not saying that you have to reinvent it, but is any, anything that we're looking at where nothing has changed in a long time, you have to evaluate. Is that because it's a freaking amazing idea and it needs no progress? Or is it the way we've always done it? And I think that that where I the reason I harp on the the helmet is because the helmet is a scapegoat for the mentality in the fire service that you can apply to the work week, you can apply to our attitude towards mental health, to the lack of fitness standards. It's oh, it's the way we've always done it. Yes, but look at how many of us die. Is it working? And that's the question people need to ask. Yeah, for sure, absolutely, and. Um I think when you when you consider where 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 I've you know where I where where I've come from or where I am now in respect of equipment and and clothing and PPE and RPE, we have evolved because we've learned lessons from failures. You know, um, firefighters getting burnt because their fire gear wasn't enough. There wasn't enough heat resistance or fire resistance in there. So we have gone away. Because somebody has, um, <clears throat> you know, there's been a, a significant accident report. And these things are filtered into the system and health and safety teams who work really hard to make sure firefighter safety is, is paramount and anything that can be learned is learned. And they go away and services and unions um, lead the way and they say, right, this has happened. How can we change that? How, how can we change the design or what it's made from or how it works so that we can ensure that these incidents and accidents don't happen again? And a manufacturer will go away and go, okay, okay, like that happened. What, what do we need to do? And they'll sit down, go back to the drawing board. They'll go back to, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll tender out to, um, um, to you know, uh, like, um, oh, what's the uh, material five gears made out of? Nomex, right. They'll go to Nomex and they'll say, um, your last product was fantastic, but we've still had this incident occur. And rather than them go, oh, that, that's, that's it. That's great for them. You know, they, they take that and it's like, right, what can we learn from that? How can we redesign what we've already, you know, this, this incredible product that we insisted no one would get burnt through? have that it has happened how can we redesign it again and we've you know and, and with that innovation and when it comes to retendering um you know all, uh, services going out and saying right we're gonna um we need a new we need new ppe and they put out a big tender process and they have stipulations it has to be this 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 and this and a manufacturer will go oh wow that's a lot of asks but you know we'll, we'll go and we'll go and make that work and they come back with these products that are no one thought that they'd be better than the last, but they are. And we keep moving forwards. And I, and I, it, it amazes me how, and I think it must stem from that initial accident reporting. And I'm sure that happens, but what happens beyond that? Are the lessons learned? And is there enough 
um, desire and uh, want for people to go out and do something different because it's very easy when someone says it's very easy to say no or not do it. Um, but that's, that's, that's the cowardly, that's the cast. That's quite a cowardly response. You know, take the challenge. If something doesn't work, go out and find another way of doing something where it does work and people do become safer. When I think about the US, because I mean, sadly, we've had so many tragedies where people haven't learned. I mean, I, I, even in my favorite department, they had one specific near miss that I know was, was brushed under the, you know, under the rug. And rather than own it and put it out there and say, here's what, you know, almost happened. We almost lost these firefighters in this hazmat incident. Um, they were very, very good at learning from other departments, but I wouldn't say they were great at sharing their own near miss. I had another one where a couple of firefighters were almost blown off a roof by a, um, a monitor on a truck, on a, on a ladder truck. Um, but when I think of the UK, the, we're part of Europe and there are so many different countries. Sweden's very progressive in the fire service, Norway. Absolutely. And I think yeah. about Homatro, I think about Draeger, I think about a lot of these companies that come out of Europe. Whereas if you're in America, the other companies are American, you know, because we are such a, a massive nation. What impact or influence is there of being part of other countries where the entire kind of mindset and culture is different on the innovation in the UK specifically? Uh, that's a good question. Is it? I mean, I, I don't know what the, what trade laws are, import laws for, for for using companies like Draeger and Rosenbauer. You know, do you have you ever seen in the US equipment with that label on? It's not an issue. It's not a case of we can't get it. We have those trade routes, right? You the US? Yeah, no. I mean, Draeger is definitely well known. It seems to be for some reason more on the hazmat side that we have. I don't know if it's because they have the larger capacity tanks. Um, but uh, Scott is one of our, our biggest ones, um, and yeah, then yeah. I just fell out of my head because I hated it. But it was there's another is company. Uh, no, no, I'll uh, I'll Google it while you're talking. Right. But I'm I'm, right, in, okay. I'm embarrassed because we did wear it in my last place, but I I, I didn't like <laughs> um, it at all. Sure, it's um, so it is. There is a um, the U.S. market for pr providing PPE, RPE, and equipment must. I mean, it must be a billion billion dollar industry. I'm, I'm certain. Um, that those companies do 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 the do the likes of Draeger and Rosenbauer have a international market. Do they do they feel like they have only got capacity to serve and provide equipment to the European market? You know, I guess they wouldn't have factories in the US. And if there isn't a desire, you know, like Kevin Costner said, build it and they will come. If, if there's no desire in the US for any of those brands, then and then none of those brands are going to go there and have the confidence to exist and, and perhaps manufacture there. I don't know. Is it? Is it? A, is, again, are we talking about tradition? I don't know many US fire service brands when it comes to bunker gear and helmets and nozzles and hose and, and 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 road traffic collision equipment i don't know but are they all u.s brands and there really is no desire to go anywhere else because we only buy united states 
Yeah, I don't know if it's that so much. MSA was the other company. And again, I'm sure they're oh, yeah. great and those people that love them. I just, I was so used yeah. to the Scott yeah. that I love the Scott and I'm, you know, in, embedded in that. But no, I mean, like I said, Draeger is here. We have Hamatro tools. Um, I love Hamatro. They were the first ones that had the, uh, I think it was called dual core. It was the hose, which is a single hose when they first yeah. came out. Yeah. And obviously yeah. now we've got the battery power ones. But uh, so, yeah. so some of the international um, products do make it here. But I'm I'm just wondering, compared to being a European country, we are exposed to all those different nations' innovations. Like you said, the barrier to entry probably in the U.S. is it's kind of like they say it's hard to to start up a new car company because you'll never compete with the ones that are already there. I feel like we're yeah, we're kind yeah. of a victim of that a little bit, where yeah. the companies that we work with, Lion and some of these other PPE companies, and now we've got this whole thing with the uh, Forever Chemicals, the PFAS is supposed to be in our gear, so there's another issue. But um, I, I think there is a sense of ingrained um, element that probably suppresses some humility and innovation and looking worldwide at what might be better out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I've only ever been used to obviously one 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 set of. I don't think there's anything that's US branded that that we use in the UK. Um, not off the top of my head. Um, which is a shame because I'm sure there is some in incredible kit out there. Um, I did actually have the opportunity to wear a Scott set once. Um, and I, I, I felt like the, 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 the regulator, breathing regulator and the domed, um, perspex visor was the vision in a Scott mask was absolutely brilliant. Nothing like I've ever seen prior. You know, we, we've had I've, I've had Drago and I've had Interspiro, um, but yeah, nothing nothing compared to that. Um, but there was a a cost and a supply issue, I think, with with uh, with Scott. So our service didn't go for it. Um, I don't know. It's it's a difficult one to to, to put put my finger on. I think Scandinavian um, services are leap years ahead. Of British farm rescue services, um, with 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 everything, with procedures, um, with equipment, um, and with innovation in generally. You know, I've seen the new these new Rose, electric Rosenbauer fire engines. Um, well, the jury's out for me on 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 electric fire engines. Um, I'm still I'm still to be convinced we've not done enough trials in the UK of them, but they look fascinating. You know, and that's um, and they're already on the run in in, in mainland Europe. Um, so it does take a, a long while to catch up. Now just on that um, for a second, because I know in electric cars, the absence of an engine and a drive shaft, if I've got that correct, if I'm not totally mm, sticking yeah. my foot in my mouth because I'm not a mechanic, yep. um, yeah. gives it a lot more. Obviously, it's lighter, but also a lot more space. So I would think on a fire engine, all of a sudden now you would have potential for extra equipment to be stored on there where those would have been in the way yeah quite possible definitely um yeah we're, we're talking about motor, direct motors on wheels now aren't we and a, and, a, and a battery pack that sits at low level floor plan floor pan level um yeah i'm sure there's there's more more space again things evolve um and things become um better designed um and more user-friendly at the sharp end um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about e-fire engines yet, but I'm, I know London are London London Fire Rescue are, are looking at um, uh, trials. I'm sure they're ongoing just now. Um, it's uh, it, you come back to uh, about um, the way that, that the US do things, or perhaps Europe do things, and um, 
and the US do their own thing. Um, in, in the UK, we have uh, an incredible thing called a, a national operational guidance. And we have all the different fire and rescue services throughout the country. Are, and they create, um, it's quite st- pretty much like standardizing procedures so that everybody ends up doing the same thing. And what that leads to is a greater understanding of cross-border incidents. You know, if you've if you if you're all working to a specific national operate operational guidance to do with, I don't know, um, electrical fires, and you're at an incident where one service is attending and the, and another border in service is attending as well, you there's a greater understanding of the of, of what you're doing because theoretically you're all working to the same procedure and the same knowledge base. Um, and this work's being shared countrywide from service to service. Other services are saying, we'll take the lead on water rescue. And when we've produced it, we'll give it to every fire and rescue service to look at. And if we're all agreed that it's a really good bit of work, we'll all adopt it. And that's what's happening now. Um, there's some incredible work being done. And I've just in my email last week, five new national operational guidance models for different um, different uh, arenas of work that we never had one before, and one of them being um, fires in um, waste sites, you know, from recycling tires to, you know, uh, scrap metals and, you know, um, all, and all the different risks and uh, that, that these, that these um, areas pose to firefighters when, when dealing with incidents at these places. Um, it's, a, it's a much healthier place to be. And I think, you know, that's, that's, I don't know why other services, I don't know why other countries don't learn um, surely there should be a greater emphasis on sending delegations once a year to an expo of some description and just absorbing what other people are doing, different ways of working, different ways of operating, different equipment, and just taking it back and saying, do you know what? I learned something last week. We should have a look at this. I mean, and and because uh, and if for nothing more than than to protect those dedicated men and women that are exposing themselves to all manner of risk, and that's the very least that an organisation should be doing for them. Absolutely. Well, we spent an hour discussing these topics, but it's important. I think, you know, you've had such a long career in the fire service. You're still in now. You know, you have the multi-generational element to draw from as well. So I think it's just important to take some time and just compare and contrast. And, you know, ultimately, whether it's the health element we've talked about, whether it's the equipment element, really, it still boils down to having the humility to take a step back look at the way you're doing it and ask, is this the best way? And then secondly, ask, is someone else doing it better? That's where the humility really comes in. Finland, tell me about what you're doing there. Okay, America, tell me about what you're doing there. Beautiful. Let's exchange you know, information. The rising tide raises all ships. So that's, uh, that's what I'd love to see when, on so many areas. You look at Portugal's drug policy, you look at the NHS when fully funded and staffed properly. Yeah, yeah, you know, you look yeah. at uh, Norway's prisons yeah. and you know, I mean, all these these countries have such amazing ideas and we just need to drop our fucking egos and learn from each other and we will all raise up. For sure. I love that analogy. I never heard that before. 
tides or rising tides raise all ships absolutely all right well then i want to get back onto your timeline so your granddad was a firefighter your dad was a firefighter so just before we advance forward what about the ripple effect of the job from your dad's perspective did you see the impact now he's in a different generation yeah i think um that was that was obviously my direct exposure so i spent a lot of time at the fire station um uh, my dad loved taking me there um and spent a long time there and at the summer holidays my mum would take me there as well um my dad always liked to and i think i i always liked going there as well i mean what 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 kid doesn't like a fire engine with big flashy blue lights you know it's a it's a thing to behold um and it was all i knew so there was this natural progression for me to end up doing that with, with two generations ahead of me. Um, but going there and just being around those individuals um, and seeing the family dynamic of, you know, there was no, there was no women in the fire service at that time at my dad's station or in that particular service, but that didn't take away from that very close knit connected group of people um, that were formed of all different manners of, of characters, you know. Um, the, I'm, I'm sure you remember the old London's Burning series way back when. That was a great show. And, uh, yeah. Um, the, 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 it, it should come back. It would be it would be a success. I think it was 12 seasons in the end it run for. Um, it would be successful still. And it was spot on. You had the grumpy one. The funny one, the prankster, the sick note—you know, the the the, the thespian. Um, there was there was there was a whole raft of people, and it and it was perfect. You know, you've got one of each of those people on every watch, seemingly, um, and it makes for a really diverse, um, interesting group that brings so much to the table. You know, so many people have got <clears throat> so many individuals have got trades as well. So, you, you know, you've got this wealth of knowledge. You've got electricians and plumbers and gas fitters and mechanics um, and builders that had those skills before they become firefighters. So you naturally, and, and, and in, in the course of your um, development and your learning to become a firefighter, you learn about all those subjects anyway, building construction, electricity, you know, water rescue, all those kinds of things. Um, you become this wealth of knowledge, but having experts in those fields as well with you on the trucks um, was brilliant. And my dad always said to me, you know, he has one of every trade that you could ever imagine on his watch and you could build a house from, from, from the foundations to the roof and everything that goes inside. There's this incredibly resourceful set of, of, of men um, that were that were, that worked incredibly well as a team, and I always found that whenever you went to the station, whether they were drilling, I would sit there at the side of the drill yard watching, and just seeing how 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 natural and how muscle memory was quite clearly. You know, I didn't know what that was then, but looking back on it, just thinking, wow, like how do they know how to do all of that stuff so quickly and so professionally? Put a ladder up run out hose, plug the hose in, lift, haul things aloft. And, you know, all those composite drills that were just repet repetition, 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 so that when you came to do it for real, 
there was no thinking about it. It was just a muscle memory thing. Um, and, and on other occasions, you'll go there for something to eat during a, during a dinner break or, or, um, or watching them play volleyball, you know, and just seeing the banter, the importance of, 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 of being able to laugh at yourself and others and not be offended. Um, just, it, it was awe-inspiring. Um, and there was no real wonder I ended up doing what I'm doing. Well, some people who are sons or daughters of firefighters, you know, other people will look at them and go, oh, it's nepotism. You were only hired because you were so-and-so's son. And that that does exist in some departments. Um, but I know your journey in, when the hiring opened up, it wasn't like the door was wide open. So walk me through your kind of, you know, recruitment experience and what were you doing job-wise while you were waiting for that yeah it was like everything ever since i left school didn't go to college because i wanted to join the fire brigade college wasn't really on my on my radar um and i just had to pre i had to occupy myself with something you know my mum and dad were very like you know now you left school you will go and get your job and you'll pay your keep and you'll you know it's not it's not free anymore um so i went out and i did sales i think i ended up in um i was selling um well i was in the welding industry in 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 heavy construction in london selling welding consumables um and and uh and chemical anchor fixings as well to to the construction industry um and yeah my, my dad was always he kept saying to me just bide your time bide your time you know you'll you'll get an opportunity and i did 18 19 20 i think i applied three years on the, on the trot. Um, you know, everyone that, what, what, what was the very small HR department in, in my service at that time, I think it was three people in there in, in, at that time. They all knew my dad, um, but, and my granddad, um, but that was that, you know, there was not a side door in. Um, and uh, my opportunity eventually came when I was, when I was 20. Um, and I, I joined just before I turned 21. Um, and it was, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of thought my route in would be um, uh, littered with mines, so, you know, along, along that journey of yeah, finding out that I was successful and then getting to training school. And, um, and my dad would, prior to me getting, prior to me joining training center would say you've got um you've got some you've you know you've got dean adrian chris bill and brian i won't mention their surnames he said all great guys you're gonna have a great time and i got there and on day one it was like oh so you're his son <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh yeah you're roger's son um, and I, like I mentioned in my book, I got quite a hard time and it wasn't an abusive hard time. It was a funny hard time, um, because my dad is, is loved and adhered by everyone in the fire and rescue service. Um, especially at that time as well. Um, quite a character. Um, yeah. And I, uh, it was an interesting, it was, it was an interesting 17 weeks. Well, talk to me about what they, I think, um, they, uh, what's the right word, mislabel the word hazing. A lot of the fire service, I mean, there's that truth, you know, if if uh, 
if they're making fun of you, they like you. If they're not talking to you, they don't. And I, I, that was very, very true. Um, but the the firehouse pranks, the you know the um, the things that would happen, especially when you were a probie or a rookie, um, I saw so many. And they, they, none of them were coming from any ill will at all. I heard of one in my last apartment that absolutely was disgusting, and everyone should have been arrested for that. But, um, but you know, people being tied to the backboard when they screwed up, and then the entire com- uh, contents of the fridge ends on top of them. The numerous buckets of water from the roof and fire uh you know the co2 extinguishers in the pole holes i mean just just yeah. a pole hole that by everyone listening is the yeah. place you slide down the pole not someone's pooper um <laughs> but uh just to clarify that but yeah so you know innocent <laughs> jokes but it was all part of like you said the offloading of some of the stuff that we did in our job and actually that bonding element too so so talk to me about some of the the events that you remember in that whole arena i just it <laughs> They, like you said, there was no there was no ill will in in in, in any of them, um, and I think even if you if you uh, I'm sure they they capture one, don't they, in, in backdraft at the beginning? No, or is it ladder? What's the other one? Ladder, ladder forty nine, f- the goose in the locker. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, that is hilarious. That is hilarious, and that is the that that is what that is what goes on in every fire and rescue service, and I'm sure from each from each end of each country the world around um this this sort of stuff goes on and i ask i kind of sometimes think to myself why does that happen and there are i've come up with a a number of answers for myself and and i yes it's that accepting you in it's and it's making sure that you feel part of something really close and trustworthy and let's let's be honest when you land at a station and it's your first day or your first night, you're not going to get a bucket of water over your head the moment you step across the threshold. That doesn't happen. Your watch, your crew gets to know you. They spend time finding out who you are, what makes you tick. They want to know that they want to, they want to be intimate with you, not in a sexual way, but they're genuinely fond of finding out who you are because you're going to be spending so much time with them and you are becoming like a fostered child you know and they want to know everything what makes you happy what makes you sad you know what what offends you what doesn't what do you like to eat you know what don't you like to eat do you like to drink do you smoke whatever it is it's it's just curiosity because they need to know you so so well so intimately because when the shit hits the fan or you're exposed to something horrific by just spending that time to get to know you on that level allows them so much compassion or allows them to understand the compassion that you need or the sympathy that you need or the empathy that you need because they've spent so long delving into you to find out who you exactly are. And once you establish that truth about someone, you know where their limits are. You know, you know where their emotional limits are, where their humor limits are, where their physical limits are. And if there is any element or there is a, if there's any area that needs some work, you know, now they know this about you, <laughs> they'll work on those areas. 
And I've often, I've often, I, I mentioned this in, in my book and I've mentioned this on a couple of other podcasts as well about the need for humor. And it's almost, it's one of the first things that is kind of discovered about you when you arrive. And I've, I've summed it up as simply as this. They know what you're going to be experiencing. They've been there a while. They've got different levels of exposure dependent on how long they've done. And they know what you are going to come up against. And for them to be able to make you laugh, for you to be able to laugh at yourself and to feel like banter and humor is an everyday part of a firefighter's life or any service or any responder, military as well, that by, f- by pushing your boundaries of being offended or extending your boundaries of offence, you are less likely to be offended out there seeing some horrendous stuff. Just being able to come back to station and say, I don't know, a moment of pause, a moment of silence around a mess table, whatever, but because you've got to know each other on such a great level, somebody says something so outrageous, that dark humour, that gallows humour where you go, oh, for fuck's sake, did you actually just, (laughs) did he actually just say that? I mean, that is fucking outrageous. But everyone laughs because it's a depressurising. It's like an instant pressure cooker release where all of that pent up emotion and, and, uh, and, and mental stress is purged. And it isn't, and it isn't without that investment of getting to know each other so, so well on every level that you're truly able to understand who everyone is. Some of the funniest days of my entire life have been in the fire service 100% like one of my my I what I would call my rock star crew my favorite crew and I've worked with some phenomenal human beings through my whole profession but this particular time on this particular truck was the you know these four people um were just it was amazing and my partner was from South Africa or is from South Africa um and so has this very same dry British humor that I had and then my uh my truck captain was a kind of homegrown American, um, you know, white American, quote unquote, and then my engineer is a Mexican American. So the racial banter that went on through the earphones and the mic on that tiller truck (laughs) would, I mean, you talk about offended. I mean, we would have been canceled the moment we drew a breath. But then you look at this fucking political correctness bullshit, and if you don't say someone's pronouns right, people lose their mind. And again, let's be very, very clear. That's point zero zero whatever percent of the population but for some reason that's been given this incredible mouthpiece that people are assuming this is how everyone else thinks so when you take a step back and you look at the trauma that we see in our professions and and law enforcement and you know the the pre-hospital and and emergency medicine and all these you know the military there's a, a huge element of discomfort of of trauma of suffering of pressure so that other shit doesn't matter you're not looking to offend someone because they transition from male or female it's it's irrelevant you know you are steve or sophie or whoever no one no one has any ill will but i wonder if we've become so um deprived of pressure and stress and discomfort in a modern society 
that when we're going to talk about this, when you talk about Russell Brand too, that maybe we can take a lesson from the fire service, from the military and go, we need stress in our life. We need discomfort. We need to be around people who we disagree with because that's how you then learn to to forge a community and then the real things that matter come to the surface. But if we're all arguing about, you know, pronouns or, you know, whatever it is, we got people killing themselves. We got people dying of cancer. We got people dying in these horrendous road traffic accidents. That's what actually matters. You know what I mean? So it's it's interesting coming from the you couldn't think of a more opposite politically correct environment than Anaheim truck A shift, truck one A shift. But we were all of those backgrounds. It was South Park mentality. Yeah. And then you look at, yeah. you know, some of the things that come across the news and the, the social media now, and you're like, how did we get so far? Because it's not that you have any ill will. It's just like, take a step back. You know, yes, your sexuality, whatever is important, but let's look at what really matters. You know, we're we're becoming morbidly obese as a nation. There's a cancer epidemic, a, a prescription pill epidemic, a mental health, you know, I mean, all these things. And we're losing the things that matter because of this superfluous white noise that is these triggered and offended people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I lead with humor, as you probably tell. <laughs> um i don't i don't shy away from humor um i use it very constructively um i use it to i, I use it to in, enforce my um enforce my uh, managerial role you know I, I might i might we might be on a drill yard um um doing a drill as you do um and somebody will be uh i don't know tying a knot to haul something aloft and I'll and I'll literally walk over and I'll just like rest, rest, which is what we say to halt a drill. I'm like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> what is that? What is that supposed to be? Um, and just by humorizing it, rather than rather, the, and the the flip side to that is rest. What are you doing? That's not how you tie a knot. You know, there's, there's 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 two ways there's there's two ways of getting the same message across. Um, and I'll and I'll literally be like fucking like undo it start again um and i just i i use it in a in a way that allows people to feel comfortable with making mistakes because they're not going to get a barrage of abuse from me the most they're going to get is a little bit of a little bit of ribbing <clears throat> and by by creating that fear-free environment you promote people's um um you give people self-confidence. You 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 fuel their self-confidence because they know they can make mistakes, and and by 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 having that feeling that they know that they can make mistakes, they're not afraid to do something that they're uncomfortable with. You know, and and they might achieve that, and they think, "Wow, I did it! I didn't think I would, but I did it," knowing they're not going to get a load of shit because they didn't. Or they tried it and they didn't do it, but they're not going to get a barrage of abuse um, for getting it wrong, you know. And I think it's so so important. And like you say, just you know, you, people that get offended um, 
Ricky Gervais. I'm sure you, the US is very familiar with Ricky Gervais. Yeah, I think he's great. <laughs> I love his Golden Globes <coughs> and his Oscar. His Oscar. Yeah. Did he do Oscars or just Golden Globes? I'm not sure. Um, but he, I'm sure you've offended uh, pretty much everyone in yeah, both of Yeah, and he, yeah and, he, <laughs> and he says, you know, he had, he had someone come up to him and said, um, in an interview, he said somebody approached him and said, um, what you said was offensive. And he said, but you're, you're the only person coming to me telling me that. If I'd said something truly offensive, there'd be a lot more than just you here. If you feel offended by what I said, that's different and that's okay. Yeah, you're allowed to be and feel offended, but don't make it a big thing because it's not. And that's what we've, and I think society or organisations have um, have rightly come to the defence of those that have raised issues. But I think it's gone beyond that. And we've created this, this woke nation of, of people that I think look to be offended. You know, they, they, they every single alleyway or intersection in life, they look for the offence and they call it out. When in actual fact, it might be just a group of people like a fire station, like a watch. And you've got this watch that's been together 20 years, long serving hands. And they're in the mess, <clears throat> as they all are every week. And a cleaner hears them having some banter. And they go and report them. And they're investigated for, for, for saying something offensive. And they all come together and say, hold on a fucking minute. We're, this this is our this is our mess our mess table our way of being this is how we communicate this is how we are we are the way we are we're in this this incredible group of people and fuck them for being offended yeah um and i and i've been there and done it and and i i truly feel quite angry at times when you hear some of the stories and you think wow how have we ended up here? I don't, it's, it's unhealthy. It really is unhealthy. Um, oh, it's, it's a, it's a rabbit hole. And I think for, I think for, for those, for those individuals that find themselves on the end of very unfair investigations, you know, I truly feel for them. You know, I have been one of those individuals. Um, and after a very long and stressful case um, investigation, it was, I was found um, innocent of any wrongdoing. <clears throat> um, I knew that from the start, but it didn't stop me enduring that very stressful, quite serious investigation with a recommendation for um, for dismissal at the end of it from from a senior officer um and you know justice prevailed i, I was i was acquitted of any wrongdoing which was which is which was the, the only uh, right outcome but some people don't get that you know they don't get that uh outcome they don't get that that luck um and they are scapegoated um which is terrible i don't know i don't know how we've ended up here um, the actions of the act, the, the terrible actions of a few that have truly offended some have led to us all being quite, you know, um, under, under, under the magnifying glass. 
um yeah i don't it's, it's very sad yeah no and i see that myself you know with with the the race issue with the sex issue and the fire service um you know i hear i hear i used to work with a guy who was uh i guess he was from one of the islands in the caribbean and no matter what you said oh that's racist or we're talking about evolution one day oh that's racist we're from monkeys that dude we're fucking all from monkeys if you believe that so how is that racist you fucking yeah. idiot but yeah. this is the problem it's like oh you don't know what it's like to be you know x in 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 time y it's like well take a step back like you know we've had female prime ministers you know we're if you want to take london for example a beautiful multicultural city yeah. when i think of british when people when americans think of british they probably think of blonde and you know blue-eyed when i yeah. think of the country that i love and adore yeah. it's this tapestry of all over the world because yeah. you know yeah. basically long story short our ancestors fucked over two-thirds of the world and now we've got those beautiful <laughs> cultures in our country more than that one it <laughs> yeah well there was something like that but but anyway so that was when yes yeah. we were yeah. racist shitbags yeah. back in the day but you look at today the 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 barrier to progress is that victim mentality. And as you pointed out, there are people have, who have been victimized, but their genuine cries for help are lost amidst this white noise of entitlement and victim mentality. So if we can get the fuck over ourselves, actually realize, and that's what I love about Britain, you talk to almost anyone who's of any color or creed, what are you? Oh, I'm British. Well, here, oh, I'm African-American. I'm Irish, German. I'm, no, you're American. You are American. You were born in America. You know, now your family might be from X or Y. My wife's half Filipino. She doesn't say I'm Filipino American. She says I'm American. No. So this is the problem is that, you know, some people like deliberately pigeonhole to then get offended rather than realize that you're part of this beautiful movement. And there's no better example than COVID. Like immediately people went two opposite directions families were destroyed friendships were destroyed over something that ultimately was always a real thing but the extremes that people went to was mythology that after they look back and you know go oh well can we just forget about that and no you can't fucking forget you just destroyed all these people's lives and that was a perfect example of this offended mentality rather than the common sense in the middle Let's figure out how to make Brits or Americans as healthy as possible. Go outside, exercise, eat good food. Let's put PE and good food back in our schools. All these things that would have positively affected everyone. They went two opposite ways. They shut down everything that was healthy and you could get fast food and alcohol delivered to your home. And then no one put their hand up and was like, hey, about what we did, we need to talk about that. They just fucking moved on. And that's how I feel with this hyper-extremist, offended, woke culture is that. There are true victims in the world and you are fucking it up for them by this triggered bullshit mentality. Yeah, sure, and uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of organisational managers as well have um, are quite scared. You know, when when somebody comes to them and says, "Oh, so and so said such and such," and you think, "Okay, I know how I know how I would manage that." It wouldn't be instantly formal. It would be okay. In here, in here. How can we sort this out? Right before we start creating a big fucking shitload of attention that no one needs that as soon as you bring it to an organization's front door is there is only one route it's going to go down and it's very, um, very formal 
and doesn't you know generally have a great outcome for anyone um and by having that initial fact finding meeting between the individuals maybe separately or together if we can't resolve it then and there and, and an individual still feels vulnerable and maybe rightly so then it progresses but there's this reluctance to apply common sense at the beginning and have a fucking honest open conversation where if if two people are happy to sit in a room and we go right none of us are leaving until we sort this out like a lot of that's gone a lot of that's been removed or you get managers or commanders call them what you will think i don't know how to deal with this i'm gonna get hr involved straight away and then you're fucked yeah yeah, because you hear the other side of the coin, like people say, oh, we used to go out the back and just, no, you didn't. You didn't fist fight every fucking, come on now. That, that's that's bullshit as well. But like you said, how you actually resolve things is you sit down together around the dinner table in the office. And then, and then you know, unless it's, you know, a sexual abuse charge or you know something like that, well, you're not going to get them back in the office at yeah, the no, same no, time. No, no. no way. But yeah, no but way. most of no these way. things, we're going to rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Yeah, I think it, yeah. what I saw, and, and it'd be interesting to get your take, the the firehouses that were truly busy, you never had pretty much any of this bullshit. It was the ones that were quiet that you had the shift wars and a lot of these complaints. Yeah. And partly probably yeah. the lack of calls and partly maybe that you know, the the less aggressive firefighters sought them. I mean, I mean that as far as wanting to do the job tended to, to find their way to the further outlying stations. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um busier stations are always healthier for, for- for, for obvious reasons. Um, I truly believe that you can, as a, a decent watch commander, um, can make a difference on their watch. And they actually promote and um, they, they, set, they set their stall out. And they say, not, not immediately, but as you become a new face of, of, of leadership on that, on that watch that you say, this is me, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. These are my expectations. This is how we're going to operate now. This is, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to lead by example. Um, and when you become really invested in, beca- in, in leading by example, you then get a lot of take up from individuals who want to be led. They want to be, they want to be not told what to do, but they want, they want to be able to follow something. And if you, if you create an environment where you from the start as a boss show a really honest, funny, dedicated won't do anything, won't ask anyone to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. Go out and wash a truck with the boys and girls and get dirty and, you know, and, and get stuck in and, cr- and create a really healthy environment. But actually say, there's another side that I won't accept. And that will be X, Y, and Z, you know. doesn't matter if he wants to be called she or she wants to be called he. None of that shit goes on on my shift. And then you get to a point where those that want to stay 
and be part of that fantastic story stay and those that don't fuck off and they're someone else's problem i don't care but you create this you you create this incredibly healthy workplace and in doing so you don't get people saying i'm offended you know because you've 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 created something quite special quite respectful um, respectful of the job they do and respectful of, of of each other that um and i'm i'm blessed i you know i'm blessed that i've everywhere i've gone and i've led by example um and i've had healthy places where i don't have to have awkward conversations noisy conversations i fucking hate having to have conversations that are anything other than funny because i want to go to work with a smile on my face as i do all of my colleagues and we all go home the same way you know um and it is leaders you know you need good leaders and and if you if an organization invests in in good leaders or you can lead yourself and encourage others who you see good in people you see good leadership skills in people that are quite clearly natural leaders that you show them a way of leading and they go on to be their own bosses of their own watches and in time everything's healthy um, you will have the, you will have you will you will have the odd rogue here and there, the odd bad apple in a barrel. But we, you know, with a bit of investment, you, we, we, it can, watches and, and workplaces can be so healthy. Well, two things that you hit on there that resonated with me. Firstly, I uh, I worked in the summer camp um, every summer for about six years um, when I was still living in England. It was just just for the the three months. And the last two years, I rose to a leadership position and was in charge of the whole waterfront safety. So I was in charge of the lifeguards and the the boating and all that stuff. The first of those two years, I went in all pally-pally. I had four years as, as one of the members of the team, one of the lifeguards, and didn't set expectations at the front door. And it just haunted me the rest of the summer. I mean, there was a guy that took the boat trying to show off and some of the girls ended up crashing it. And, you know, just, I mean, it was a shit show. And it was on me. I hadn't set those expectations at the front. The last, the second year of the leadership position, I learned from those mistakes and I did. And I forget if I was, you know, getting mentored by someone as far as what I should be doing. But um, I, at the front door, like I said, I'm pretty, you know, I, I like to laugh a lot too, but in that first meeting, it was like, here's what we're responsible for. Here's the expectations. Here's, you know, here's the, the parameters that we have to operate into. And then after the hard and fast kind of um, perimeter was set, then I eased off and then we started having a great time. And it was an amazing summer and everyone, you know, knew where they were. Now, in the fire service, I always stayed at the firefighter level. I just I loved being a firefighter, you know, a, a back back seat firefighter simple as that but what i saw in the leaders that i respected and you know you can also say leadership at that role as well senior firefighter whatever you want to call it is every time that my leader my officer was out there just like you said washing the rigs with me you know as as my captain used to say one works we all work i love that you know how can you sit in a lazy boy watching tv when you know your engineer is out there checking out the rig or whatever it is and so that was the other element. So if at the front door you have someone who maybe potentially might be offended, quote unquote, but from day one, you are doing everything that you're asking them to do as well. You've removed that power of, oh, you're, you know, you're picking on me. You're, you're separating me. You told me to do this thing. No one else is doing. 
if I clean the shitters, then you should clean the shares. If I clean the truck, you should clean the truck. If I'm out there doing PT or doing some, you know, some training and gear, get your fucking gear on and come out here and do it with me. And I think that's, you know, so what you've hit on that is one of the reasons maybe that we're seeing some of these problems is in a bad department that I worked at, I would be told to go do X, Y, and Z while my lieutenant sat in his office checking his fucking Facebook. That is the environment that's going to create potential problems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I've, I've said that throughout. And I've I've been blessed with having some poor managers. That might sound a bit odd. No, no, trust me. I've learned a lot from the shitty yeah. ones too. <laughs> but it isn't until you, you, you kind of sit back and go, wow, fucking hell. If I ever get to a position of management, that is not how I'm doing it. And then you obviously, you, you get the benefit of, of those that are incredible. And it's such a healthy place to be because you've got these two examples, you know, one, you know what not to do. And two, you know what to do and then some and, and grow and grow and, and, uh, uh, and progress from that point on. And I'm, I've been very lucky, very lucky with the exposure that I've had, had some incredible senior officers, incredible watch, you know, watch firefighters long, you know, old, old hands that have done, uh, we just, I said what, goodbye to one in January, um, retired, done his 30 years. Um, and I said to him in his speech at the pub, I might've had a few to drink, but I managed it. And I said to him, you're the last <clears throat> on that particular watch. That I was, I'm not on that watch anymore. I've moved stations. But when he left in part of my speech was your, 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 you're my rock. You know, for me, this was your watch. You know, you'd, you'd spent 29 years on this watch. This was your watch, not mine. You know, and now you've left. I feel, I feel quite, um, and this isn't any in any way disrespectful for those that I'm left with without you. I feel quite lost. You know, you were that stability. You were that rock star that was always dependable. Um, and would always, you know, would always be there to talk to, get advice from, or he'd come over and go, have you thought about, you know, maybe doing it like this? And I'd be like, no, but <laughs> thank you for bringing it to my attention. Um, just, you know, and that's what comes from, 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 from exposure to incredible people. Um, you, it, it shapes who you are as well, massively shapes who you are. Um, and just, you know, on top of that, being, being around people like yourself and, and having opportunities and the book, you know, write, writing the book, like I did gave me this, um, I didn't know where I would go with it. I don't know. I didn't know whether I'd sell a copy or a million copies. It, there was no, there was no thought of that. It was, I'm going to do this. And in doing so have opened up so many doors to fire service related industries and people and opportunities, but um, have just been uh, uh, enriched. My life has been enriched with me meeting so many incredible people. Um, and it's, and it all influences who I am and who, who and who I'm going to become. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's where I'm, I'm sort of heading now. I want to do more of this kind of stuff to become a better person myself, but also to share this with others as well and, and, and make them better versions of themselves as well. 
Well, I love the book, and it was it was even more powerful, like we said at the beginning of the interview, that we got to literally exchange books. Yeah. You know, yes. I signed yeah. yours the right way, and then and you yeah. signed mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, as you said, there is an element of humor. You talk about the firehouse pranks and some of the uh, you know the humorous side, but I just kind of want to un unwrap for a second. The other side of it, you touch on, um, uh, let me see, Dr. Death and your exposure to some of the trauma early on. But then as you progress through your career, you talk about some of the fatalities that you physically experience. And, you know, as with all of us, that has, you know, comes at a cost. So, you know, walk me through your mental health journey, if you wouldn't mind, up to where you, you know, where you wrote the book. And then was there an element of catharsis by actually putting that on paper? Yeah, um, it it never it it was never set to feature a dark side, you know. It was always it was always. I started the journey of writing the book with a massive emphasis on reinforcing the need, or should I say, trying to uh, trying to in, encourage or enable those that were offended by some some of the firefighter humor that was that was overheard that there's a place for it there's a need for it and there's a necessity for it and unless you are working within that close intimate group of people and understand why it happens do not pass judgment on it so i wanted to write a book that was predominantly about firefighter humor things we see do witness whatever it was um we would uh we would we there would be a need for it so what ended up happening was as i started writing and 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 it evolved and we started uh me and my editor was we had many many conversations and we said what what what, where do we you know i've mentioned this do we emphasize on that do we go down that route because we then detract from the original brief of the book and is there, you know, sh- should we be going off, off piece? So we said, we, he said, just keep, keep writing, just whatever comes to mind, carry on writing and we'll see where we end up. And as you say, as I started to talk about Dr. Death and my experience of death and what I'd witnessed up to that point in my life of joining training school, which was very little around what what death actually looks like i um was compelled to keep writing and the more i wrote the more incidents i remembered and the more incidents i remembered i was thinking fuck no i I thought i thought i'd kind of dealt with that and uh and now i'm i'm I'm, i've re-exposed myself and and it was quite a powerful thing because I'd started to experience feelings for those incidents that I hadn't, I hadn't experienced at the time or certainly immediately after or in the weeks and months after that, I started remembering specific details. And, and at first I was really uncomfortable with it. I'll be honest. You know, I I had to make some phone calls to some, to an individual who I mentioned, um, uh, quite uh, quite significantly in the book, a, a lady called Jackie's Jackie Wilmshurst, who was a phenomenal risk psychologist. Um, just to, I needed, I just needed to vent and just get get grounded on a, on a few feelings. Um, 
and I said to my editor, oh, I'm not sure about this. I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going to put any of this in. We've gone right off, right off subject. Um, and he said, keep going with it, you know, just stick with it. And then like the penny dropped, it was this epiphany where I thought, I, I'm not alone in these feelings. Every single person from, from, from service that reads my book or listens to the audio book will relate. And in that relating and, and having an opportunity to um, inwardly reflect on the way they're feeling and perhaps maybe up to that point in their lives haven't been courageous enough to deal with it themselves internally in their own heads, let alone having a conversation with a third party to, you know, in therapy. But if I can enable people, and I don't mean to sound cliche because with, with, with all this emphasis on mental health and discussion and it's okay not to be okay and all those um, phrases, I feel a little bit like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I want to make good the world. But I just feel that I had a job to do, and then when I when I'd when I'd got more and more stories down, and then I started to talk about the effects that it had on me and my family, I just thought, no fuck, this has to go in. This this is relevant on my timeline, and it does go hand in hand in a weird kind of way with humour. You can't have the light right, without because, the dark, as they say. Yeah, yeah, and you can't, you know, you can't depressure if if you need to depressurize with gallows humor or dark humor then you must have been in a pretty traumatic situation or, or exposure to an event that puts you in a place where you need to decompress with humor so it went hand in hand with banter and humor in the fire service so i kept writing um and like i said m many things were rediscovered i i, I ventured into uh, other um, uh, other incidents that I thought I dealt with, um, and just started to realise like fuck. I remember then talking to my dad, and and my dad. I remember conversations with my dad, and he was talking about specific specific jobs and incidents that he'd been to, and then I record him on car journeys. Go, yeah, seven year old girl died there in the back of a Ford Capri in 1987. And, and and my my journey anywhere with my dad was was there were like land fucking landmarks everywhere not interesting landmarks pretty fucking gruesome dark landmarks where you couldn't go anywhere without a reminder on a journey of what you did in that particular fucking lay by at such and such a time you know on a wet November morning um and I found myself doing it as well. And, you know, and I, I, I still do it now. I'll drive down this particular road, uh, large A road near to me. And in the space of five miles, I've been to nine fatalities over the course of 20 years. Right. And each one of those was fucking horrendous. But I can't get from A to B without taking that fucking route. I could, I could go a long way around, but that'd be um, <laughs> ridiculous. But you're constantly reminded. And with those reminders comes that <laughs> trudging up, trudging up of, of, of old feeling. Um, most of it I've dealt with. Um, a lot of it, 
uh, I'm sure it will come back and knock on my door of my, my, my emotional door at some point. Um, but I feel like I've, I've got enough resilience and, and uh, awareness of, of who I am that I'm able to manage those things and those feelings. And if I can't, I know where to go to help, you know, um, and just getting them on the page. Um, we got to a point where, yeah, like I said, I, I felt comfortable and I felt that there was a, a complete relevance for it being in the book. Um, and just knowing now, now post publication and, and, and receiving so many, so many messages of feedback and thanks from individuals who were suffering in silence that did have their own horror stories in their heads. I'm happy that I gave them enough of my own story for them to be able to think, do you know what? If he's, and I did feel really vulnerable actually going to publication because a lot of my colleagues that see me as this figure of, managerial strength and humor and consistency would read that book and go hold on a fucking minute <laughs> he's been to some pretty fucking dark places and it comes with and, and with that comes uh, and, and, and you know uh, i had a number of people say i never knew any of you. i never knew any of that about you and just want to say thank you for, for you know thank you for sharing it must have been hard and it was genuinely but I'm happy that I've um, that I've kept that in there, or continued with it, and listened li listened to my um, my my editor and my my agent, and and got it down. Um, and I'm glad because it's it's had some incredible um, influence on other people. Well, I think it. I'm glad that you did too, because like I said, it contrasts the firehouse humor the ridiculousness of some of the things that we see. I mean, you write about some pretty, you know, hilarious scenes that I think a lot of us have been to something similar. You know, um, the reasons for some fires, the the things that are in people's bedrooms or in their sex dungeon or whatever it is. But then, you know, you have the opposite side. You have, you know, and I think we talked about the, the draw ground and how you don't shout at someone for getting a knot wrong. One of the things I think we do so poorly, at least in the fire services, you know, the departments that I've worked in and, and the education that I've had as a firefighter and a paramedic is there's almost this facade that if you do X, Y, and Z, then it will work. And actually a fire scene is a complete clusterfuck. I mean, it's organized chaos and that's why you're leaning into your skills and your muscle memory and everything else because it's, there's such an unknown. I mean, especially on a large scale like Grenfell or, you know, some of these big incidents, I'm sure the antique fire that you have is probably similar to that. Um, but, uh, you know, then in the EMS world where we do so much in the American fire service, well, if you give these, these drugs and you defibrillate them at this, you know, amount of energy, and you do these compressions and you give these breaths, then the person will live. My entire career, 14 years, I never had a single legitimate code save. Now, now that's, a, that's a hell of a weight to carry because I know almost everyone else that has. So again, you're like, well, what's wrong with me? But it's, I look back and I go, I trained diligently. I just had those calls where they don't, they're not going to come back. They don't come back from this. I had a quadriplegic who you couldn't even do compressions on his chest because his 
his body was so atrophied from a motorcycle accident at 18. You know, I had the guy, the 27-year-old that had a fucking massive brain bleed in the middle of a, a resort area here. You know, I mean, you're just not going to get him back. But so those things, that load, that weight is so important to talk about. And then, as you said, contrast with the firehouse humor and that community and camaraderie because they go hand in hand. And as you said earlier, what terrifies me, whether it's the political correctness, stopping people from being able to offload the right way, or physically, like in COVID, I heard, thank God I was at the fire service by that point, oh, we can't sit at the dinner table and eat. We've got to eat in separate rooms. A, that's pure in fucking insanity. B, that's a complete abandonment of the understanding of basic, you know, microbiology and physics. But that's another entire conversation. But C, you've taken away the very coping mechanism, the only one that's really left for a crew that sees and does some of the most horrific shit that the average person will never, ever understand. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, and, and, you know, that happened, that happened everywhere. Um, at the time, I think most people thought, I genuinely think most people were concerned. Um, I think society were considerably more concerned than the first responders. And I think that's only because first responders are used to exposure to risk, you know, and there's, there's almost that you're, uh, you're the, the very nature of what you do, you are putting yourself in harm's way. So you're already in that thought process anyway um you just had to tighten up what you did a little bit more and um and health and safety was um was uh emphasized you know much 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 more greatly um but yeah i remember you know we it was a one-way routes into station you could you 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 were only allowed to enter in this door it was a one-way system you had to exit that door there was, you know, only one person could train in the gym at a time. Um, dinner tables had to be split up into singular tables and half the watch at this hour, the other half at this hour. Were um, people holding their did... breath in the stations as well? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 everything went. Every Everything that you can, all these, um, it, it was a mad, mad time. Um yeah crazy times i think a lot of i I was you know i certainly didn't think it was full-on scandemic but i did believe that there was a huge overkill going on in some areas in some aspects yeah so Um, you stood in the middle of the middle of the conversation like probably 80 or 90 percent of people like yes this is a real virus but no we can't stop it with masks and hand sanitizers. And, and clearly, as, as much as we love the vaccine would have been safe and fully effective, it wasn't. So that's the thing. Most people just stood in the middle. Like, yes, this is a real thing. But no, we're not going to wrap ourselves in fucking cellophane and just, you know, suck on an oxygen tank for the next two years. And this is what is so crazy is we had the opportunity to truly disseminate amazing wellness information and down-regulate the fear and isolate the vulnerable and keep the rest of us at work. And they did the fucking polar opposite. And I watched, so I was heartbroken watching, you know, the men and women in first responder communities here walking out like they were on the set of ET to go respond to a tummy ache. It was just insanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. Um, there was, there was lots of that that went on in our service as well. Um, 
huge, huge knee-jerk reactions, and and I think in a, in an era or in a day in in, in a in a yeah in an era of um, corporate kind of um, litigation, um, there was no wriggle room. There was no you could not apply common sense. There was too much paranoia and fear, and it was. Um, you know, from 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 above, it was like this is how you have to be. This is how you're going to do things from now on. Um, and for the most part, people were sensible. But I think when 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 certain aspects of service left stations, it was like fucking hell. <laughs> Listen, we'll do what we need to do, but we, we will apply some fucking common sense now. They're gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, fully, fully, uh, <laughs> and that that went on everywhere to a, to a point of uh, yeah, like we had to every incident that we went to that involved a person, not a person with COVID, just any fucking person. If you had close proximity contact with them, um, you're you had to stay at the roadside, weren't allowed to get back on a fire truck, and you had a a, a decon officer mobilised to your location, and you were um you were sprayed and wiped down and everything that you were wearing that touched the individual had to go into a red dissolvable bag that was sent for away for a specialist technical cleaning. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, we could see it during, but now when you look on the outside, knowing what we know, yeah. oh, for yeah, fuck's yeah. sake. Yeah. And this is what's so funny yeah. is I watched the, the first responder. Oh, you know, if, if you've had any exposure, then you and your whole crew has to, well, how long did that work? For about three days. <laughs> so they realize, oh, we have no one left to work. Oh, we're actually, you know, we're going to change it now. So, so it's not the truth because if it was the truth, you just shut down the fire service when everyone was exposed and then everyone else would just be left, left to bleed to death in their cars and burn to death yeah. in their houses. Yeah. But COVID is yeah. so, so serious that sorry we've got to isolate our firefighters from you because what if they give you covid in the middle of a structure fire we can't have that so the insanity was there for everyone to fucking see and again the truth was make as healthy a population as you can and in two fucking years they didn't do that i mean we had what joe is it joe wicks is that his name in the uk some yeah. random personal yeah. trainer doing yeah. youtube it seems like he did more good on the wellness of the you know, uk population <laughs> than any yeah. fucking government official yeah. So yeah, this is what sure. was so fucking heartbreaking is it was real, but what an amazing opportunity to truly make a dent in the mental and physical health of the world. And they did the polar opposite and had the audacity to talk about, oh, it's about people's well-being. No, it's not. It never fucking was because otherwise we would all have a healthier nation two years on and the absolute reverse is the, is the, the reality. And you look at you look now at all the stories that are coming out of, um, you know, the... Uh... <laughs> political gains and the um, uh, contracts that were won and money that was spent on PPE and, and people uh, creating companies, PPE companies and, and, uh, and, and, and getting a, whatever, a billion pound off the UK government for PPE that they didn't actually have. And there's, there's, there's so many stories that come out, loads of people capital, you know, loads of people capitalized on the situation. Um, newspapers capitalized on it. You know, your, your tabloids peddled fear through the nations, um, certainly here in the UK um, and created a frenzy that was unnecessary. Yes. There was many things that we didn't know about it, but those people that did know enough 
were silenced. Those people that did, those people that were quite educated in the areas of, of the subject, that, that, that were trying to say, we fucking warned you about this three years prior, you know, and, and you did nothing about it. All those individuals didn't get a voice, you know, they, um, they were quickly shut down. Um, yeah, conspiracy. I'm a massive conspiracy conspiracy theorist. Um, well, my wife actually sent me a picture yesterday. She thought uh, it would be very apt, and it said, uh, "I identify as a conspiracy theorist, and my pronouns are told you and so." <laughs> I saw that one. I saw another one of an interview, and I think a guy was was interviewing someone again who was talking about pronouns, and he goes, "I identify as a as a medical doctor," and she's like, "Well, you can't do that." I said, "I can." And you're offended that you're not allowing me to. You know what I mean? Like, where does it stop? But yeah, and I think the problem is with the conspiracy. Yeah, there are like Sandy Hook was a cons- you know, never happened. That is a damn disgrace to all the parents and those children that died. And you should be, you know, sued till you're penniless if you if you stepped out that kind of shit. But, you know, was was there elements of um greed and corruption around this whole thing sure. absolutely i mean 100%. not just this i mean so many things while our responders are understaffed and fire stations are closing people are making billions off you know all these other things yeah. so so yeah, yeah how, that's not that's a conspiracy right. that's a truth no yeah absolutely and i think the more the more stories that come out after that and these people still exist in in in, in positions of power is is fucking beyond beyond comprehensible um, it's criminal, but there's no, there's no, um, uh, there's no, where is the scrutiny? There's no scrutiny. There, there is not, there's, there isn't a, a department or an organization that can scrutinize the, the corrupt, the, the corruption or the accountability, you know, like we know X, yeah, Y, and Z happened. You, you know, you or I, if we screwed up yeah. on our job, as you said, yeah. you'd, you'd be held for, you know, Absolutely. written up, yeah. demoted, fired. We now know all the abuse of power and funds, taxpayers' money that happened, you know, and we got an NHS that's that's crumbling because of, of lack of money, and they held the line for two years. Where's the accountability for whoever was responsible for that and whoever preyed upon that whole issue? They should be behind bars. Mm. It's no question. They should sure. be in fucking yeah. jail now. Yeah, for sure. And 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 is there any wonder that we've that we've got a, a, such a depressed, oppressed, uh, depressed? Certainly in the UK, a depressed um, social um, element. You know, everyone's depressed. Everyone's unhappy. Um, feeling, like I said before, it's like a dystopia, and it's all um, it's all driven by this this narrative of keep people in fear, keep people controlled with fear. Um, and uh, um, and and divide and conquer. Absolutely. Well, the whole point of these conversations is obviously to bring solutions to these problems as well. Yeah. It's not just a bitch fest. I think we've done. You know, we've we've the the uh, transatlantic conversation so far has been fascinating. Now, your book is up in smoke: stories from a life on fire. Now, what's interesting is you have a uh, review at the front from Russell Brand. So tell me about how you met him, how he was, you know, how you got him to to kind of uh, put his name on the book and then what you are participating in with him this next few months. 
I've known Russell Brand since I was five. We went to primary school together. Oh, really? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, not many people know that. Um, but he, uh, he, me and him went through primary school, um, uh, junior school and secondary school together. Um, and obviously we, we both left school. He went away um, and did his thing. I did mine. Um, and we reconnected in 2013 um, via... How did that come about? I was doing some work with the Fire Brigade Union um, and we were looking for um, significant individuals to help us with a campaign for um, uh, protecting our pensions, which which the government um, destroyed and fucking ruined for many, many people. Um, so he jumped on board, um, connected with him again and said, would you, you know, would you help support us? And he said, yes, brilliant. Absolutely. Can you help me? Can you help me with something as well, then? Um, and he, I helped him with a with a, a, a thing in Hoxton, Shoreditch, in London. Um, it was a campaign. It was actually um, a, a housing complex, <clears throat> and many many families were being told that a individual had bought their apartment building, which was local authority, and. They were given two months' notice that their rents were going up from six hundred pound a month to three thousand pounds a month. Jesus Christ! <laughs> and they were like, "Well, fucking no, I'm going to, you know, we're all, we're all. <laughs> it's, it's quite a rundown area, this particular building, and and it was all designed so that no one could afford it. So they all moved out. The whole, the whole thing would have been pulled down, and a new set of luxury apartments built in this." quite up and coming area of, of Hoxton gentrification. Um, yeah, it was called the new era estate. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, Russ, they got hold of Russell brand. Russell brand obviously got hold of me and said, what can we do? Let, can, can, how much chaos can we cause? Um, and then that, that led to many things, me and him climbing up fucking scaffolding on Lord Rothermere, the owner of the daily Mail's Mayfair house <laughs> with a fucking banner that said, I'm Lord Rothermere and I didn't pay any inheritance tax on 1.6 billion pound. And I remember standing up there thinking, all I wanted you to fucking do is help us with the pensions battle. And now I'm up on scaffolding with the police uh, just arrived, um, uh, wanting, wanting to arrest us for aggravated trespass. But anyway, so we, um, so we, we've got, we got up to many, many things. Um, and uh, when I told him that I was writing the book, I said, would you, um, would you do a jacket quote for me? And he said, absolutely. What do you want me to write? And I went, no, read the book, read the book and just come up with something very organic. And, um, and he did. And that, that's obviously what appears on the, on the front cover now. And I'm very grateful for, for the friendship I've have, friendship I have with him. Um, and all he does for, you know, fighting people's corners. Absolutely. Well, talk to me about the event that you're participating in that he's putting on. So that's the uh, community festival um, in this July, the 14th, 15th, 16th and 17th of July. It's in Hay-on-Wye in uh, Wales, I believe that is, in, in the west western side of the United Kingdom. Um, and he invited me to come along and talk to his festival goers about the importance of community 
the importance of solidarity, unity, um, togetherness, courage, trust, call it what you will, from the perspective of a um, firefighter who has a significant job, a role in, 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 in a community dynamic. You know, the pillars of community, our first responders, and in particular, my profession, um, firefighting, we're, we're looked up to and admired by, by so many people in the community. You've only got to drive around. You know, you've been there. You drive around on, on a fire engine, men, women, young, old, kids, everyone loves the fire service. You're held in such high regard. Um, and Russell wants to take advantage of that to put across to the communities at the festival, you know, to his festival goers that are all members of their own communities away from a festival that he wants me to share with them the success, the success story of firefighters and why they're successful with all those things, you know, solidarity and unity um, being the sort of undercurrent for a, a conversation on so that they can perhaps take some elements of our success story home to their own communities or social groups and say, do you know what? If we had more unity, we'd be better at this. If we had more collectivization or activism or we came together as, as one voice and said, no, we're not having that to their employer or their council, whatever, that actually taking the success story from a firefighter and, and adapting it and using whatever bits of it you want to make your lives better in your own communities is, is a win-win, you know? Um, so he just, he, he said, like, can you, can you put something together? So that's what I'm currently writing now. Um, call it a, a TED talk, if you like, um, for, 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 for community and, and what that actually means from the perspective of, of a firefighter. It's good. It's, um, it's coming on, you know, when you, again, uh, things evolve, <clears throat> you start to write and with, with writing comes more thought and with more thought comes more writing and you inspire yourself. Um, and as it, develops you think this is fucking this is this is a this is another book you know <laughs> there's another book here absolutely um but you know and it would have to obviously grow from that it's, a, it's an hour i think it's an hour long um it's going to be um multi-sensual so we'll have a a lot of audio as well um i intend to have some some real life quite harrowing 999 calls dispatch calls um just to emphasize and uh, emote people, just get them feeling like, fuck, you know, it's quite, lots of people don't know what it means to be a firefighter or a fire control operator. They know we exist in their community. They might drive past the fire station every day, but unless you've had the need, if you, unless you've had the misfortune or been unfortunate to need our services, no one really knows who we are. You know, we're kind of this insurance policy. <clears throat> so just to be able to share some of that story, some aspects of that story and the success of our story, um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be good fun. 
Oh, it sounds amazing. And I was just talking to um, uh, one of my guests a few episodes ago, and he's in the world of marketing. And one of the things he was doing, was, which was excellent, was kind of really giving people a kind of guidebook on how to start a nonprofit specifically. But I asked him about how the fire service brands in itself, because as you said, we're still that kind of, you know, first responder ninja that, that you know, exists in the shadows when we come out and you might see us in the supermarket or driving down the road. But it's only when you have an emergency that you really see, oh, now I see what they do. And it's not just fire. It's not just this. You know, you're you're doing CPR on my on my husband or, you know, you're cutting my child out of a car. And OK, now I'm starting to understand it. So we do a terrible job of telling the public what we do. And I think there's so much value. And I've talked about this a lot. I think in the book, even there's so much value in how the world looks through a first responder's eyes. You see the obesity epidemic, you see the gang violence, you see all these things. So you go to your doctor and they go, oh, just take these pills and your blood pressure will be fine. You and I know that's not the case because we're the ones that the last face that they see when they're 48 years old and they die with a giant sack of medication. So I think that, you know, what you're doing is phenomenal. And there's probably going to be a lot of people that are really going to be taken aback because whether it's through our books the presentation that you're doing, you know, even London's burning, you know, you're getting an insight to what we actually do, but also what we see, which is a mirror to how society actually looks. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, and that's, and you, you, I mean, I'm sure you heard it all the time um, going to going to incidents. It was like, I never, I never thought this would happen to me. Um, and, and it's, it's quite, it's quite a naive thought. You know, it, you could, uh, and uh, and I guess people people go about their lives. They're very busy lives. They've got routines, and the thought of anything bad happening is probably not even in their consideration. Um, but just having the platform and having the voice to be able to influence and educate individuals, whether that's individually as a family as a group, as a festival, call it what you will, podcast, a, a book. Um, we all, we have, we, we, you and I and all the other first responders that have been, that are to be, have got such an important job to do in sharing what we know because, and but I, you know, I, I I litter my Facebook with not occasionally, not every day, um, with messages, safety messages. You know, don't charge your mobile phone under your duvet or under your pillow, plugged in, gets hot, causes fires. And I'll put up a whole host of pictures of examples of that kind of incident. Or um, don't leave your tumble dryer on when you go out and remember to remove all the lint and the dust from it so that it doesn't overheat and catch fire and or this will happen, you know, and there'll be pictures of devastated utility rooms and kitchens and houses, and people will go, wow, and you'll get messages pop through. Thanks for that. I never knew that. I won't do that again. And then you'll get, I'll go to the fire station. <laughs> Predictable as it is, and you'll get firefighters going, what are you posting all that fucking shit up on your Facebook for? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, expected, it's the same old characters. But in not doing so is very selfish. <clears throat> because what I know 
is quite obvious and what my colleagues who shared his comment is quite clearly obvious you know it's not obvious to everyone and just by having the opportunity to put it in a book or on a podcast or on a on a social media platform is to actually say listen i fucking do this day in and day out week in and week out and there's some little nuggets of advice that i can give you that will stop you being that person that stood next to a firefighter going, I never thought that would happen to me. Do you know what I mean? It's a duty of care. It's a duty of care for one human being to another human being just to look out for someone, just because you have the benefit of some experience and knowledge that can keep other people safe, which might be obvious to you or to others that you work with, but not to everyone, you know? And I think it's, it's really important that we do that. Yeah, I think a perfect example here in the States is, is the driving. Like almost no one will use their indicator. They'll ride the, the ass of the car in front. Um, you know, they'll miss a turn and just stop in the middle of the road and, and flip a bitch as they call it here. And it's just a lack of education. But again, there's, and we have so many deaths. We have 40,000 fatalities on the road every year. And that's fatalities. That's the people that, that survive with you know, life-changing injuries and millions, millions of actual collisions. Um, and it's like, where, why are we not making the test harder and doing a better job of educating? This is why you use a, you know, an indicator, a blinker. It's, you're telling everyone else on the road, this is what I'm about to do. You know, so it is, it's, it's our responsibility to disseminate the knowledge that we have and take a step back and realize that you're in an echo chamber we see death and destruction and damage all day every day you know we see the worst case so we have this amazing platform and this amazing you know spectrum of knowledge and experiences to say look you know but rather than just be like oh don't be a fucking idiot you know use your your indicator say why here's why here's why keeping you know back from the car in front will potentially save your life or pedestrian's life. Like they'll, you can turn right on a red light here. We're on the right side of the road and you can turn right. So people will just fucking blast through as if there's a, there's a green arrow. No, not stopping to think there might be a mother pushing her pram in the walkway when you blast through and just fucking destroy someone's entire family. You know what I mean? So that you just don't hear that. So it's so important, I think. And this is what's so amazing about your book and some of the other people that be on the show with their books and the podcasts is it's just another opportunity. If you reach one person and that makes them change their behavior in one way and you save a single life, everything else is a bonus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, that's, that's true of uh, it, it, recently having um, uh, spoken about Dr. Death um, and his uh, brief, briefcase full of gory pictures. Um, and some of them, like myself, who are up to that point of joining training school and being introduced to, to Dr. Death, had no experience of trauma in, in, that, in that respect. And when I saw these, these photographs, it was more, more like Hollywood. You know, it was like, it, it looks fake. You know, how can that actually be a real person? How can that actually happen to someone? Must be, must be fiction. Um, and it isn't until <clears throat> you experience it yourself where you, I found myself very grateful for the controlled exposure at, at, at the start of my career, because at least it gave me something to expect. Nothing will ever prepare you for the, for the reality, 
but it gave you an idea <clears throat> of what you are likely to face. Now, I remember years ago in the UK, there was a advert and it was about wearing seatbelts in the back of your car. And it was a mother driving her kids um, down the road and somebody stepped out in front of his ball. I think it was a ball bounced out in front and she did an emergency stop. She's doing like 50 miles an hour. And the child in the back comes forward and their head hits the back of the mother's head. And it's all slow, slow motion, isn't it? Yeah, and it explodes. And I remember thinking, fucking hell. I mean, what a horrendous, what a horrendous advert, event, whatever you want to call it. But I tell you what, from that moment on, my fucking kids are in the back of the car. <laughs> it's like, put your fucking seatbelt on. Like, we're not going anywhere. Because you was given the harsh reality of it. Now, and I brought this up with my service about having a portfolio of death for new recruits to look at. Oh no, uh, you'll offend people. You can't show pictures. It's like GDPR. It's disrespectful. You can't. We're not doing it. I'm like, where have how have we ended up here? Because I tell you what, by removing that controlled exposure to those individuals or removing those adverts off the television, you are now putting people at greater risk because the first time that an individual goes and sees that horror is for real and they've had no stealing, stealing of their stomach to know what to expect or from the television advert they've not got the car you can't show people that it's offensive so the mother of the child that gets in the car that hasn't seen the advert because it's not allowed to be on telly anymore gets her child in the back knows she hasn't got a seatbelt on but doesn't understand the danger of what might next happen should she stop abruptly what where is the protection being afforded like it's it's fucking it's just madness utter madness and we and we and we end up and we end up, i know we've gone full circle and back to back to here but it's relevant for where we are in the conversation it's just um i, I don't get it we 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 need to be uh we need to be doing something else we need to be having giving people that honesty do you know what i mean no absolutely that's one thing that i remember just so clearly was the british psas was were so amazing because they hit you where they need to i would much rather see a simulation of that happening on television than it happened to my own child and i wrote about in the book i forget the name now um but the the farm safety one my dad would show us that every year and it was traumatizing as a kid but (laughs) i can still remember it to this day you know all the things you shouldn't do like don't mess with bottles of things on a farm and i grew up on a farm had all that shit around me you know, don't go in the the uh, the pit and don't, you know, mess around yeah. around a tractor and all these things. I can see these kids' faces to this day, you know, and, and especially, like you said, in the first responder profession, do you need to show an encyclopedia of horror? No, but 
when you're describing, especially in the medicine side, you know, or extrication or whatever it is, like, here's what happened. And you talked about, it's ironic, you talked about the one decapitation that you went on. And for some reason, that sent me right back to one of the calls I had um, where we thought there was X number of, of uh, victims. And I actually found another one balled up in the the well, like the seat, under the wow. seat of the um, the passenger side. Like she was just this, like this human had been turned into this bull, like say baled hay. It was bizarre, but you know, it was grotesque. It was horrendous. But I was very fortunate with the British PSAs growing up with, with a, vet, a veterinary surgeon as, a, as a, a dad. I grew up around blood and guts my whole life. It didn't prepare me for disfigured humans, but it definitely gave me a good exposure. And then in, you know, in EMT school, the medic school and fire schools, we, they did show us not all the time, but there were a few times where a class would show hamburger face, the guy that blew his own face off with a shotgun and some of these other things. So I agree with you, like controlled, you know, calculated exposure to some of the horrors you see. Firstly, as a selection process, I know people that have been to those classes and like, Yep, I just realized I don't want to do this shit. And they leave. Yeah, Perfect. Absolutely. Good. Much better yeah, to do that yeah. than, than deep in your yeah, career. Yeah. But secondly, yeah. you are going to see horrible things. And I think that you're right. That horror should be portrayed on television. Because if you don't wear your seatbelt, if you, you know, you do mess with someone's gun, whatever it is, whatever PSA is going to be on, yeah. it needs yeah. to be hard hit. And that's not when yeah. you Disneyfy yeah. stuff. Yeah. And what and the big question is why? Why 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 have we not? Is there is there not a need? Of course, there's a need, but why are we not doing it? Is 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 it deliberate? Is it a lack of care? I don't know. Is it a lack of funding? You know, these things obviously cost a lot of a lot of money to produce. Um, or <laughs> we go back to the KPIs again. We're not. Uh, it's not. It's not. A, it's not a vote winner. Um, you know, it's not going to, it's not, uh, we're not, we're not coming up to an election of any description and we don't need votes for it. So it's not on any political agenda. Yeah. Or you've wrapped yourself in a, in a virtual bubble and you pretend that all the horrible shit in life doesn't happen. And that's when yeah. you find yourself yeah. standing next to your burning fire or bleeding child saying, I never thought this would happen to me. Well, it's too fucking late now, isn't it? So this is the issue is, you know, by canceling everything, now you're going to find yourself completely vulnerable one day and completely ill prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and that's, that's 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 a very valid point. By 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 listening to the naught point naught naught one whatever they are of society that are offended by everything, and saying right, okay, we can't have any more of those individuals coming to the door, so we're going to cancel everything. You've just you've you've, you've removed common sense. You've removed a healthy part of uh, of that information sharing. Yeah, so it's not not great. Things might change. I think with conversations like this, um, and certainly, I keep banging on the door of my employer and saying, my recent one, can you show me um, the services risk assessment for exposure to trauma? I know they haven't got one, but. It's you know they they've they'll be like oh okay once you start asking the noisy questions, um, it creates debate, it creates stimulation around that subject, and just maybe things progress, and they look at you know they look at um you know I was told oh this sits with this sits with occupational health, right. 
No, it sits with occupational health when you're fucked and you're and you're off with PTSD. That's where it sits with occupational health. But here at this end, when we're trying to build resilience and training people and giving people tools to manage their feelings and emotions, that's health and safety. Not fucking occupational health. Stop calling it that, you know. Do something different at this end. And just maybe, maybe you'll save yourself some money, lots of money, because people won't be off with long-term sickness, with mental health issues. Um, They won't leave the service quite soon after they joined, after you've spent all that money training them because they can't, you know, they can't manage um, the the blood and guts and gore. Um, Yeah, it's it's quite short-sighted. There's no kind of, oh, Actually, if we did do something different, what does that look like for us financially in, in 20 years' time? Do you know what I mean? It's really short-sighted, very short-sighted. But it's, um, it's, a healthy, it's a healthy debate. Absolutely. Well, it's been a very philosophical conversation, a lot more than I thought it was going to be, but that's what I love about these, these chats. You know, it's totally organic. So your book is Up in Smoke, Stories from the Life on Fire. So let's first talk about, I want to throw some closing questions at you, but before we do, where can people find the book? Um, it's um, So in the US, I guess the US market, um, it can be ordered through Amazon. Um, I believe those individuals that have got it in the US that have um, that, are, that have read it and are currently reading it, some in Canada as well, um, ordered it via the .co.uk aspect of Amazon and just paid for the shipping. Um, it can be ordered uh, as the audiobook, um, which I recorded myself. Um, that's obviously um, transatlantic. Um, that's on Audible. Um, and there's an ebook for Kindle that's available as well. That's via Amazon. Um, and then there's many, many bookshops. I mean, they're UK based, but Waterstones, Foils, WH Smith. Um, the some indie in, indie bookshops as well. The big green bookshop. They've got signed copies, as I understand it. I did a load for them. Um, and where else? And the paperback is. I've just received a first. <laughs> it was a it was a, a direction. It was just an email to say, hey, what do you think of this? Um, and it was a, a, the cover of a. Uh, <laughs> It was my new editor's vision of, and bless her, Beth. She's she's amazing. She'll, I'm sure she'll listen to this. So um, it's obviously not her that's created the artwork, but she said, "Hey, how does this look?" Um, and for the, this is obviously a podcast, so it's just for your benefit, James. Um, it was a picture of, uh, um, yeah, you'll see it. It looks like that's not from the US, uh, the UK, though, huh? <laughs> it's not. Uh, the German firefighter. So my, 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 my question was, I like the, I like where you're going with it, but I never served in Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> she said, oh, thank you for the direction. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll speak to my design team and come come up with something a little bit more to home. I said, if if for nothing else, there needs, there needs to be some authenticity and some credibility. Um, so, yes, the paperback, that comes out on the 17th, no, the 2nd of July paperback um i'm looking forward to that they've gone for a rebrand uh and and a, and a couple of changes um but yeah i'm looking forward to it it's, a, it's another another launch 
Beautiful. Well, speaking of books, are there any books written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, yes. I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> Aside from yours. <laughs> Aside from mine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there is there's a couple that I'm reading just now. Um, <clears throat> um, there's one called the uh, Tools of Titans. Tim Ferriss. Uh, a phenomenal book. This is Ruth Powell who suggested this to me. Um, just incredible. And um, it's a 24 hour audio book. I must admit, it's a really big book. I'm glad I bought the audio version rather than the hardback because books tend. To, I don't tend to read many books because sometimes they scare me because how big they are. I'm glad I didn't order that on Amazon because that's probably 200 millimeters thick. So yeah, that one, uh, Radical Candor is really good by Kim Scott. Love that. That was uh, actually Pete Wakefield that suggested that to me. Um, and I guess the last one out of these books is... The Power of Giving Away Power. Tell me about that one. I've never heard that before. Yeah. So The Power of Giving Away Power by Matthew Barzen. Um, he's an American author. Um, and he's uh, he, he, he talks about um, if it's to be a good leader, you um, it's good to um, – I don't want to ruin it for everyone, but it's, it's good to um, give people responsibility. You know, and by giving people responsibility, you you show that you trust them, um, that you're investing in them, and you also say to them, like I do quite often, you can do this job better than me. And you you know you you uh, you just inspire the next generation of of of, of conscientious professional firefighter. Um, so yeah, three incredible books, highly recommended. Beautiful. Yeah, I think Jocko Willink refers to that as decentralized command, basically the opposite of micromanaging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, th I, I do it. I do it at work um, very consciously, um, and it it you get the best out of people, get great productivity, um, a great uh, feeling of acceptance, trust. Um, and you'll find that on days when there's something extra that needs to be done, if you didn't have that investment in those people and those close relationships and you and you were just saying, oh, you know, do you, do you mind doing this? It's going to take half an hour out of your lunch break. You get people go, oh, fuck off. That's my hour. It's my lunch break. But by just having deeper, meaningful relationships with people, um, you'll find that that's not unquestionable. It's like, yeah, no worries. And then you say, you can, you know, once once you've finished your hour, for your, your hour, your hour for your lunch break can start there. And whatever whatever we have planned for the afternoon, I'll just make some fucking phone calls and we'll push it back. You know what I mean? It's all about just not taking the piss. Absolutely. All right. Well, then that's books. What about a film and or a documentary that you love? You put me on the spot here, James. Um, a film. <clears throat> I guess the most recent film where I really, I, I loved, I love kind of um, um, detective type 
films um two films that i've recently watched and, and and recommended to everyone was enola holmes 2 that's so cool period drama and it's based around a true story of victorian uh it's a, a candle making factory in victorian london um the women it's a it's a story about the women there um uh, becoming unwell from uh, the processes of making candles. Anyway, it's a great, great film. And on top of that, it's the new uh, film called uh, Knives Out. The Glass um, Onion. The Glass Glass Onion, yeah, with uh, Daniel Craig. Fantastic film again, uh, all around that kind of detective theme. I just couldn't get past his accent. I love Daniel Craig. He's my favorite <laughs> James know. Bond, but that Louisiana <laughs> accent, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know. How, I, mean, I mean, hats off to him. He was really good at it, in my opinion, um, to consistently have that uh, that accent without falling out of character. You know, I'm, I'm sure we we only got the final cut, but um, uh, I'm sure there were lots of outtakes where they were like, "Listen, they don't fucking talk like that." Yeah. <laughs> in the Bayou, you've gone off. <laughs> you've gone off. Uh, you've gone off character. We need to take that again. Um, but yeah, I love I love detective films. I love period dramas as well. Um, yeah beautiful all right well then the next question is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world jackie wilmshurst i mentioned her earlier one of the most incredible kind thoughtful human beings ever to grace this planet let's make it happen <laughs> she'd love it she'd Beautiful. absolutely love it she's uh she's um yeah you'll be enriched for the exposure fantastic thank you all right well then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you what do you do to decompress decompress um i love djing i love house music love it how long have you been in that <laughs> uh 2000 that was that was off the back of a very dark incident um and i uh yeah, very dark place for me, and I needed to refocus my attention. Um, and yeah, got into house music. That was two thousand and fifteen. Um, yeah, I've got a full full commercial pioneer set up in my in my studio here. Um, I love it, absolutely love it. So, if you don't mind me asking, that obviously was something that lifted you out of a place. You know, wh where were you mentally at that point? Um, I had um, been exposed to uh, needle stick injury with a with a, um, a heroin user, and um, I was um, interested in about GDPR and um, and protection. We both arrived at hospital together. He was he'd been involved in quite a serious incident and uh, a car accident. Um, he was on a motorcycle, and we got to the hospital. Um, I accidentally. Um, got stuck on a cannula during the incident of trying to save his life. We both had arrived. They'd stabilised him. He was talking a bit of an undesirable, and he was asked by the doctor if he wouldn't mind him sharing his blood results with me so that I could have an idea of where I stood. And he said, no. He said, no. And the doctor said to me, I can't give you them. And I said, why the fuck not? And he said, GDPR. And I said, who, where? I said, 
but let me fucking get this around my head. Where should the protection be afforded? And yeah, that was uh, that that sent that that put me you know for a three month a, th- a three month incubation period on some quite some toxic a- anti HIV drugs, um, um, and had to wait three months to get an all clear. Yeah, very very dark place. Um, you know you know when you think how <laughs> how how can society how can an individual from society with a first responder that's just spent the best part of ninety minutes saving your life you get explained the situation and you are coherent. You're not under any sort of morphine or fucking ketamine drug painkillers. You know exactly what you're being asked and you say no. And there's, and there's no legal protection to, to no, force no, the no, results. Not at all. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> Blimey. You know, I laugh about it now. It was uh, it was quite horrific at the time, but um, I do laugh about it now. It just uh, it's, it's moments like that where you think I didn't think people could amaze me anymore, yeah. but they are. They're they're they're, uh, they're few and far between. The world's a beautiful place and full of beautiful people. Well, again, thank you for that share sharing that because that's a you know a real fear for a lot of us. I mean, I was a paramedic for for quite a while, and you know every patient pretty much gets a needle, so it was a real a real worry for a lot of us. And I know fellow firefighters that did get sick and stuck, excuse me, and luckily none of them that I'm aware of caught anything specific mm. from it. No, no, no. There's dangers out there. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, then for people listening, we talked about where they can find the book. Where else online can they find and learn more about you, whether it's social media or websites? Yeah, I have a, um, a large uh, presence. It's not large, modest um, uh, presence on Twitter. Uh, that's at Hosey underscore Pickett. At Hosey underscore Pickett. Um, Instagram is uh, at Lee underscore lee spell l-e-i-g-h lee underscore hosey h-o-s-y underscore picket um I, when i took my wife's name on that's just the predominant places i have got a facebook page as well which is lee hosey picket uh no 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 spaces no underscores um <laughs> my wife's a french national she's from um, strasbourg in the northeastern part of France. And um, when we, we decided to get married, she said, uh, am, am I taking your surname? And I said, no, do you know what? In memory of your, in memory of your late father, I'll, I'll take yours and we'll keep his, his name alive. Because once you become married and you take my name, the Hosey name is gone forever. I said, so just in, in, in recognition and to keep your dad's name alive, I'll take yours. And it was hugs and tears. And, and um, I never really had any idea of what I'd let myself in for because back at work. <laughs> I can only I said, imagine. I'm now, uh, I'm now watch Commander Hosey Pickett. And all I got was, are you fucking serious? <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Like, um, uh, like you couldn't get a more uh, a more fire brigade industrial, you know, uh, taking on the name of a picket uh, striking. Um, yeah, Hosey Pickett in in the fire service was uh, was probably one of the funniest things I've ever done. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> All right. Well, Lee, I want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for almost three hours. Like I said, we went to wow, some very philosophical that... places. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? No way. Time flies. Really? 
But Do you uh, know what? I've enjoyed every single minute of that, James. It's been amazing. So I want to thank you so much. Uh, firstly, you know, for coming on and being so generous with your time. As I mentioned before, you and your wife, who I got to meet coming down to Hyde Park yeah, when yeah. we were there. And then, uh, you know, thirdly for the book. I mean, I read the book. I think it's a, a beautiful insight. Thank and you. like you said, that balance of comedy and likewise, the dark side likewise. as well. So thank you so much. Yeah. Friends for life, James. Thanks for having me on.